following chapter of Bogdanovich's career has yet to be recorded in any significant capacity. Previous retrospectives of his works tend to end at his dramatic apex, with the more thorough examinations dipping into the later classics and recent reevaluations recognizing his last theatrical works. Nobody, however, has paid any attention to his TV works from the 90s. Nobody. I did a lot of TV work that I'm very proud of, but television work doesn't get considered the same as a feature, even though you shoot it like a feature. It's still a movie, you still get the script right, you still cast it, you shoot it quickly, and it's harder because you're shooting fast, but it doesn't get any consideration. It's snob appeal. That's what Bogdanovich had to say in a rare interview in which he was asked about his television works, expressing at least some bitterness to the disregard paid to the work he gave equal efforts to despite the smaller canvas. I was directing, but I wasn't doing theatrical features. I did five television films in five years. I shot them very fast, and nobody saw them except millions of people. Although these films are all but forgotten today, in their time Bogdanovich's Movie of the Week work was quite successful. With every household glued to their TVs in search of nightly entertainment throughout the decade, Bogdanovich's films made waves across the Nielsen ratings, but promptly disappeared from the pages of posterity. Even his first television project, a sequel to the classic Sidney Poitier film, To Sir With Love, has made no impression on the Bogdanovich canon. In a depressing fit of irony, the two Hollywood legends passed tragically on the same day, making To Sir With Love 2 a kind of twilight coda for the both of them, buried within the legacies of their more treasured works. It's a worthy successor to its predecessor, better even in some regards, such as the way it transplants the tangential racial themes of the first film to the progressive and more critical conversations of the 1990s. Bogdanovich's films had rarely ventured outside his prerogative for thematic material up until now. Bogdanovich's films had rarely ventured outside his prerogative for thematic material up until now, but by transitioning to for hire work on television, he'd find a number of new opportunities to explore perspectives and struggles which were beyond his own. Blessed Assurance, perhaps also known as The Price of Heaven, attempts to continue this conversation in its portrayal of a Korean War veteran returning home to face a moral dilemma in a job which requires him to prey on the vulnerability of an impoverished black commune. The truncated structure of the TV movie mold does the story a disservice and leaves the film little room to flesh out its themes. Its embrace of melodrama betrays the sense of distinction Bogdanovich eloquently bestowed upon its first TV production, embodying the kind of schmaltzy, middling productions derisively associated with the genre. Rescuers, Stories of Courage, Two Women. Two Women. <laughs> Rescuers, Stories of Courage, Two Women is the first in a series of three thematically related movies about courageous persons aiding the escape of Jews from Nazi agents in occupied Poland. Bogdanovich helmed this first entry, but the film lacks any recognizable features attributable to the director. Despite having himself been conceived in the former Yugoslavia before his parents fled from the Nazis and landed in New York, the film lacks any personal distinction or any significant revelations, as bog-standard as Bogdanovich ever got. Jules Dassin was unfortunately not one of the major Hollywood directors whose influence managed to inspire Bogdanovich to chronicle their legacy, but his important role as an architect of film noir's impact on cinema nonetheless managed to worm its way into Bogdanovich's career. The Naked City was a seminal 1948 noir which distinguished itself with a documentary-like approach to shooting on the streets of New York. Bogdanovich was hired to make a TV movie continuation of the characters first seen in Dassin's film, now dealing with the criminals of contemporary New York. Naked City, A Killer Christmas stars Scott Glenn in the role first helmed by grizzled noir everyman Richard Widmark, searching for a serial killer terrorizing the city. It's about as close as Bogdanovich ever got to inheriting the legacy of Fritz Lang or Edgar Ulmer, but more often the film feels like an ordinary cop drama than an expressionistic revival.
The next film from Bogdanovich couldn't be farther from his usual prerogative. A body swap comedy set in New Orleans where professional football player David Allen Greer and his artist wife Vivica A. Fox mend their marriage through the old adage of walking a mile in each other's shoes. It's also a Disney film brimming with the requisite amount of Disney cornball and childish humor. A saintly switch maintains a certain affable charm, a universal appeal which speaks to the importance of family and communication while supplying some fantastical humor in all of Bogdanovich's illustrious comic career. From one sports sphere to another, Bogdanovich's last TV film was produced, surprisingly, by ESPN. They asked him to make a movie about disgraced baseball legend Pete Rose, whose story interested Bogdanovich as a kind of embodiment of the failures of the American dream. Rose rose his way up in prominence through a lucrative, record-breaking career in baseball, but squandered it all away thanks to a debilitating gambling addiction. He became a coach for the team he first became famous on and started fixing games to pay his bills. When he was finally caught, he spent five months in jail and was stripped of all his previous honors. What we see in Hustle is that downfall, in full, a depraved portrait of a fallen man finally reaching the end of his rope. If you're not a fan of baseball or aren't particularly familiar with the legend of Pete Rose, then Hustle will likely be a foul ball instead of a home run. But regardless of how successful or not these films ultimately were, they kept Bogdanovich employed. And even more than that, they sharpened his skills. I couldn't have made The Cat's Meow, which we did in 31 days, if I hadn't have done five television films back-to-back -back in five years. All of them, 19, 20, 22, 24 days. There would never be another last picture show for the enlightened successor of the Hollywood Masters, but he did manage some respectable efforts working in an undervalued medium. Bogdanovich never considered his television works any less worthy of consideration than his feature films, and neither should we. Considering how a number of Bogdanovich's most treasured films still don't have proper distribution, even Paper Moon lacks a North American Blu-ray release, it should come as no surprise that his televisual period languishes thanks to pervasive obscurity. We feel very privileged here at the Twin Geeks to have the resources necessary for us to catalog and cover these forgotten films, with special thanks to Scarecrow Video in Seattle, Washington for preserving these works on a physical format, which not even the unsavoriest of internet pirates have thought to claim. It's up to us to preserve the legacy of filmmakers like Peter Bogdanovich, to do for him what he did for Orson Welles, John Ford, and innumerable others, to prop up his legacy and appreciate everything he gave to the world, classics, flops, scriptures, and chronicles, because, if nothing else, the life and career of Peter Bogdanovich exemplified an appreciation for the art of cinema above all else and the necessity of its preservation and celebration in equal measure. Great, they're running a, a pump vac. Upstairs. Fun. Look at that. That shouldn't make any noise. Great. <laughs> hey, you got through your intro. I, I say we take a quick break then. Okay. Because they're just going to be doing that for a bit. to the Twin Geeks 152. I'm here with David in person. Bonjour. Uh, for the fourth time? Fourth, I think. Let's see, we've done Blue Velvet and Playtime and Notorious, Notorious and there's probably another one, but Maybe. let's say four. Yeah, let's say four. 
Uh, you're here at my apartment. We went laser tagging last night. We did. My thighs hurt still, yeah. by the way. Going yeah, up the stairs it. in your place, it's still just like, ah. <laughs> I'm an old man now. Yeah. We're both very old, and we're here with uh, our Bogdanovich TV movies. I went to Scarecrow and grabbed uh, four of them. We watched six movies the last 24 yeah. hours. They did have the other two, but they were only on VHS yeah. and we don't own a VHS player, but luckily we were able to find copies on YouTube to watch, where a lot of, you can find a lot of different TV movies there, but the other ones were not, and we, so we were only able, we are only able to do this section and cover this part of Bogdanovich's career, because we have access to these great rental stores near us. There's also some back close where I live in Portland at Movie Madness, but they didn't have quite everything. Scarecrow's just... Just a little bit bigger than it's Movie Madness. The world's biggest video collections. Scarecrow is pretty impressive what yeah. they got in there. So we're, we're very thankful that they had all of this and that they helped you find everything because it's not like you're struggling to find a couple. You said, you said they didn't have any. They, they said they didn't they have said, any. I, I don't, and I I don't didn't believe to that. <laughs> their ability to find their movies. But yeah, I, I just did not believe that somebody went and, and, so. and rented these specific niche <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich TV movies. Like, I get that the guy just died, and yeah. everyone's, you know, mourning his death, but people are clamoring to go watch The Last Picture Show and Paper Moon. Nobody gives a shit about rescuers' stories of courage to women. I, I give a shit about Saintly Switch, though, and this is what this has all been leading to, is my enthusiasm for Saintly Switch, the reason I agreed to do this podcast. Well, this is, I mean, it's kind of, this episode is kind of the reason why I even wanted to do it as well, because I think, I think as I alluded before, other retrospectives I've seen done of Bogdanovich, including the one he did with uh, TCM on their podcast, The Plot Thickens, uh, they just taper off uh, after a certain point. They get to the apex of his career, people talk about the tragedy surrounding, they all laughed, they talk about a little bit of his redemption with Mask, and maybe, maybe they get to some of the 90s stuff. And like a little bit of two thousands, maybe they talk about the cat's meow, and it's like, hey, he did that story about Hearst. That's the, a Bogdanovich thing, but they just completely ignore, completely ignore all of this TV movie stuff. And uh, I get why, but as Bogdanovich himself said, it, it really is just snobbery. Like we just think that there's a inherent superiority to things made for the cinema versus made for television, even though. For all intents and purposes, they're structured and presented in the same manner. As you said in the intro, their movie of the week, they kind of they kind of show, and then you look at Letterbox for some of these. There's one review for uh, Rescuers: uh, Story of Two Women, uh, uh, Courage, Women's Courage. It's not in English. It's probably in whatever language the YouTube rip we saw was, right. was streaming in. It was in English, the movie, but like they had banners that were in. <laughs> I don't yes. know, like check or something. Yeah, there were there were some very creative banners. One was a, a Thanksgiving uh, yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting how it made it over there, but uh, <laughs> just makes makes zero impressions after the fact here. But um, we really wanted to cover them because of that lack of coverage, and because Bogdanovich himself still found importance in them. In any interviews he gave, where the TV movies were brought up, he did express that he was very proud of the work he did there. And that they, he felt that they helped shape him better as a filmmaker, and that there were movies later in his career afterwards that he couldn't have made had he not become more proficient and, and quicker and you know better as a filmmaker through doing those TV productions, the more expedient, you know, fast-paced uh, worlds of doing all of that. And what good would it do just to cover the things that have been covered and rank those when we could rank these six movies that nobody's seen? Well, oh, that's, that's the whole part of this: is to to dive in and find 
the the movies hidden the, the gems hidden within the the dirt there you know and there actually are there's some good ones here it's not just a big pile of crap like this this whole block isn't looked over with good reason there are some good movies in here and there's also good efforts and there's some bogdanovichian identifiers here you know that's yeah. been the most rewarding thing i think about this whole uh, the, the retrospective process as a whole anytime you dive into a filmmaker's filmography and you just go deep all the way in you'll find things of, of greatness that just haven't been highlighted, have not made their way into the official canon because, you know, quality isn't determined by what everyone dictates is best, what the, what the majority says. You know, it's subjective. Um, but, and, and sometimes the majority just doesn't get to something or sometimes it's, you know, a distribution issue, which is like the case here. And, and with a lot of the Bogdanovich films, we've talked about his films just don't have a whole lot of distribution. There's yeah. a lot of them are just... There, there are rights issues that are tied up in getting copies out there more, or there's cuts issues. There are a lot of films that were compromised along the way. And, and you have places like ESPN, which just commissioned this thing to show it once, and maybe someone recorded it. And you know, like I'm surprised these have DVDs with like face covers on them. This thing is that all of these have been released on home media in some format. Even the mm -hmm. ones that were only on VHS, that's that's still distribution that they got on physical media. Somewhere. And that's more than for some filmmakers, so right. that's that's really nice. But it's not necessarily accessible. Just because they <laughs> exist out there on physical formats doesn't mean that they're accessible. I mean, the, look at these modern filmmakers. There's going to be a period where these streaming services go down, and there's going to be like a whole, um, a whole range of cinema that's just going to be like only digital and only like in the pirate bay like yeah there's there's not going to be a physical release for the 200 netflix movies released a year right i'm i'm really i'm concerned about that because there there is definitely still uh some you know like they, they should be preserved even terrible movies yeah should be preserved. everything i i mean i don't think we care so much that these are the best movies of the crop i don't think any one of these is going to top our rankings but like the process but it's it's going to be important just from a historical perspective like consider even if as a documentary it's not going to be important so many years later his, you know culturally the impact something like tiger king had is important <laughs> enough that it should be preserved I, I'd agree yeah yeah like like 20 years from now people are going to write the history of you know pandemic film mania or whatever we're, we're going to call it I'm going to write the, the history of the Tiger King and talk about how I texted someone with one number off of mine and then we carried on a mimetic conversation for two weeks about Tiger King yeah because it was on the tip of or, or Squid Game as another yes, example yes. where it's just one of those things that swept you know swept the, the, the culture that should be on DVD I mean I, I think it would be valuable to have that on DVD just for the access and the cultural point and the recognitions it's gotten at awards um, it got well awarded at SAG, so I mean that is a significant piece of media now, and it's not released anywhere but Netflix. Yeah, and again, to speak even more to this, you know, again to bring it back to Bogdanovich here, the other side of the wind still doesn't have a physical release. It's a film that was made by Orson Welles in the 70s yeah. that was never completed because of legal issues tied up with the Iranian government, and it finally got finished in 2018 thanks to decades of work for preservation and you know champion from Peter Bogdanovich and Frank Marshall and others and it's brilliant and you can't see it except for on Netflix it should exist on physical form it's a lost Orson Welles film that they're not going to promote I, ever yeah. again I mean it's just on Netflix it's never going to be at the top of their page ever again even even the documentary they made about restoring and bringing it all together 
It's <laughs> not what, advertised on no. Netflix. It's in the extras for the film. Yeah. Like you have to hunt for it. I I've, I've complained about this so many times on this podcast. At but least I'm, thirty times. I'm, yeah. But I'm going to continue to until it's fixed because this is just it's the epitome of the tragedy of of this to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Like uh, the other side of the wind is the epitome of preservation for one, and also the tragedy like, of losing like, it. Like why why did you finance this movie Netflix? <laughs> If you're not going to actually preserve it. You know why. It's just clout. Just something they could but say they did. But they didn't did. promote it. I know, they, they did not. They're not, they're not even using it. Like, you're not even seeing that shit slapped on Oscar banners. Like, I, at least, from the from the streaming service that brought you Orson Welles' final film. Like at, at least when something bombs on physical media, it's often in sales. Like, it's continually cycled through, like, a Blu-ray.com sale, like, every week if it's a... If it's a real shit film, you're still going to see it. But week. but it'll still exist, like yeah, you know exactly, and it's existing on your shelf, and you could get to it. What if we have a problem with Netflix? Like, what if they like fund, uh, I dare say, like a transphobic comedian, and you're like, I want to cancel my account, <laughs> and then suddenly you can't watch an important work like Other Side of the Wind because you have a petition against them. Well, just also in general, like the, for the historical ass, uh, ideas of how there have been films that have been brought back from total annihilation. Thanks yeah. to um, you know them existing on some physical format, usually on a film print, and sometimes it's just like a discarded, damaged, fucked up film print, for, you know, beyond recognition. <laughs> but they're able to take efforts to restore it and bring it back to life. So if for some reason we're going to have to hope some some screener, you know, like like of the other side of the wind, you know, exists, and so when Netflix inevitably shuts down due to you know I don't know some kind of nuclear holocaust or something, <laughs> and, and Netflix HQ. That somebody will bring forth their screener and say, "We have the film. We can still see it." Right. I mean, there's there's so many movies still on VHS that haven't made it to DVD, and DVD movies that haven't made it to Blu-ray. And obviously, uh, most including of the Bogdanovich films. Most yeah. Bogdanovich films haven't. Made, you know what's weird though is that I think the Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and strangely, At Long Last Love yeah. are the only movies of his that have made a Blu-ray. That's and the disturbing. last the last one I think I said this before. Just really, really rare Blu-ray. Like, it was a very limited print done by Amazon, and every other version of the movie is terrible. Even the one I, I tried renting from Movie Man. Yeah. Like, it's just a, v, it's a recording bootleg. Like, it was so <laughs> intolerable, I couldn't watch it. Um, uh, these that we've all watched have been DVD or below quality, so it's not like these are like uh, preserved in like the highest quality and put back out, but um, that's okay. It's just the access point that matters. Yeah, um, and again, like DVD quality is still good. You know, it's, it's good enough. Yeah, uh, but they they should exist, and we should continue to make efforts to preserve them. And I, I would love to see, I don't know, everything. I'll say I'd love to see everything exist on on high definition formats, but it's obviously not practical. Mm-hmm. But w- whatever efforts can be taken to preserve them, you know, is is greatly appreciated, so that we can. Consider them in the wider context, because again, all of these films, all of these films we're going to talk about today, are still important in the Bogdanovich legacy. Yeah. They're still informative in the context of his overall work, and they paint a portrait of an important time in his evolution as a filmmaker. They transitioned sure. from the the final flops of his theatrical career in the 90s into the new millennium, and kind of into a, a semi-retirement state, right. effectively. Because he didn't do any made. He oh he did do the documentaries which we'll get to yeah. next week. We're gonna get to those. We're actually going to extend the show a week so we could get to some of those docs. So uh, we'll have the Tom Petty and the directed by John Ford and 
Uh, what are what are the other two there? Buster Keaton and then the Natalie, Natalie Wood, Wood, which yeah. is not exactly. We'll get to it. We'll, we'll get to it next week. <laughs> uh, so you got in two nights ago and very late at night, and I was like buzzing with energy to get to these. So I didn't sleep for a night, and then we woke up the next morning and uh, we started right away. Just uh, yep. sleep deprived, uh, bloodshot eyes, and we started with uh, Two Sir with Love too. And I haven't seen Two Sir with Love. You've seen it. I did. It's a it's a Sidney Poitier film. It was one of three he made in 1967 which are kind of this famous representation of what Sidney Poitier basically was in the mm-hmm. 60s, this this kind of prominent first black man of Hollywood, first leading black man, you know, in the movies, and all of his movies were about that. Mm-hmm. They're about the fact that he was a stand-up black man in America making waves and breaking racial barriers. He was slapping racist white folks in Mississippi. He was upsetting Spencer Tracy by getting it on with his daughter, he was coming to and dinner. having to dinner. Yeah. yeah, in in late in the in the late fifties, he was chained to Tony Curtis and a chain gang. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and, and Tony Curtis was a big racist, and he had to get over that. Yeah, in, in order to work together, so they wouldn't get con- anyway. So that that was the Sidney Poitier mold of movies. And in To Serve with Love, he was a teacher in uh, England, uh, which meant that the racial element of the film was not as prominent. It was way more mm-hmm. your kind of like standard, you know, uh, like teacher par excellence has to come in and wrangle these rowdy kids. He has to he has to reach the kids in an inner city and guide them back to the way. Like, Which an enduring format for movies. Anytime yeah, there's a teacher who has to come get these rabble-rousers and, and get them to like abide by the school, that, that's that's good movie making. And including a film that Sidney Poitier was one of the rabble-rousers in. Blackboard Jungle in in the fifties, which we agreed might be like the the ultimate example that everyone knows it. And I watched that I watched that film in school twice. I think, yeah. oddly twice. To to me, it's kind of like the the epitome and, and the start of it. It it kind of kicks off or embodies the the genre in its best qualities. Uh, to to start with, love does have a little bit of the racial commentary, but it's like it's, it's a little uncomfortable. It's it's a little outdated again in the kind of sixties way. There's there's one like racist teacher who's like oh maybe you can summon up some black magic to get these okay. kids over. It's like uh, it's like that he he says voodoo at some point and, and they we'll get to black magic about, and voodoo yeah. yes yeah a- anyway it's a little dated in those elements. To start with love two uh, takes place in the nineties. It's about thirty years after the fact, almost thirty years, um, and he is forced into retirement and moves from uh, England. He moves from London to Chicago. To inner city Chicago, which comes with its own, you know, its own context and racial um, uh, racial uh, themes for the movie to confront. Particularly for the 90s. Yeah. Very, very different kind of demonstration of racism. Like, again, the kind of, like, archaic and very Hollywooded, you know, Poitier-style dealings of race that you get in the 60s films is... It's a very different world in the 90s. And so immediately, I think there's an interest here. It's like, let's take this notion, this antiquated notion of how we talk about race, this emblem of that even, and transplant it, just shove it right into the thick of it, into the 90s racial politics. Boom, you know, uh, inner city Chicago. That automatically creates some interesting tension. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like the beginning of the film. It's like him, he's he's coming in, he's like, I'm, I'm a professional of 30 years, I've got... The experience of this, I'll be able to handle these kids. It's my calling in life. And it's just, it's a whole new world. Whole new way of dealing with shit. 
these kids are completely different than the the kind of uh, the, the the mocker the, the the mods and the you know that that you kind of got in the yeah, '60s film for sure. What I liked right away <laughs> is that it doesn't quite set up why he's doing it. Like it kind of leaves that lingering question about what Pottier's uh, purpose is, it's, what his raison d'être is, why he's moving all the way to Chicago for one, but also like why he wants to help these students, what's in it for him, why would he... He's just gone into forced retirement, effectively, is yeah, what it sets They up. don't say forced retirement again. And that's the, and that's the, the weird start, thing. They, they get to it. So it was confusing, because like, it's just... The beginning's very nice. It's, it's very nice for someone who, who hasn't seen the previous film. This is, this is a really great sequel in the sense that you don't have to see the first film to oh, yeah. appreciate it. But the beginning takes the requisite time to pay homage. He walks into his old classroom. There's clips of the old film playing over got his memories they bring back lulu the the rock star that had a central role she does the theme song again it's very nice you know you have this nice thing he says and, and he says he's retiring to go teach in inner city school in chicago which is like what? wow yeah. that's that's not what uh it, it is and then hard cut from the nice 60s theme music to r&b seal full full blast going Lots on seal. yeah seal. just like like huge shift in tone like we're in the 90s baby this is the 90s and i loved that i loved that <laughs> the boldness of that choice i thought it was ridiculous but perfect for for transporting you from one realm to another yeah it's a good move and it really sets the film up in an interesting way and i'm i'm enjoying like a the passage here like i haven't seen to serve with love i didn't need to this uh sets it up perfectly and i feel like uh, what I want is actually in this film. I like the way that the students are characterized and they each have unique identities and they each have a purpose that's not like that requisite, okay, this is the uh, troublemaker, this is the good girl, you know. They have depth. Like, the characters themselves have things they want. Yeah. Every character, every student has something they want, something they need, something they're struggling with. Yeah, they all have these personal, individual struggles that make them characters and not, like, stock, uh, mm -hmm. you know, persons in the film. Uh, and that's something I found different with uh, the, the original film. Uh, not that I want to draw too many comparisons, but it, it kind of does because it, it retreads a lot of the same idea. Because of course it does. You right. know? Yeah, it's uh, a but, format. But yeah. it does it in a different way, in a, and in a contemporary way, that, which I really appreciated uh, and, and was surprised by, frankly. Um, the, the characters are all very distinctive, unique, and, and they fill those roles uh, both as a kind of like homogenous, uncontrollable, rowdy group, yeah. but also like individual dynamics within those groups the ones who are clearly just you know under the thumb of the the the, the more uncontrollable students the chaotic mm. ones you know the ones who are really inciting a lot of the issues here the ones that are kind of going along with it following in in the mold but also again have their own distinct struggles and characteristics and then you get the meat of the film when you see Poitiers character play out and and create individual dynamics with each of the students and reach them on you know personal levels to talk about the issues that are causing them to you know feel like they have to act out or rebel like this and to give them proper outlets and an ability to express themselves in a way they haven't found or been able to yet it is one of my favorite signature potier moments actually where the kid has the gun and he's able to like talk him down from um, you know, what he needs it for at that moment. He's going to have a confrontation outside, so he's just been passed a gun through the window, and Pottier is able to, like, wrangle it 
through um, empathizing with the character, really. Yes. He's, he's not going to play an authoritarian role. He's just going to take the gun. He's going to turn it he's, in. He's without, not going. He's not without, going to take the gun. He's going to get him to give him the gun. Right. Yeah. And that's a big, big he's part of not, it. He's uh, not taking the gun from him. He's going to find a way to make him surrender. And like that exchange, and that like uh, precision of acting from Potia is really what. I like most about him, and I think that that scene is really the movie. I, I love that bit. I think that's a great one too. Embodies it really, and again, not not only in the sense that it demonstrates the central, you know, dynamic and idea of these kind of mm-hmm. films and the character, but particularly in the way it speaks to the dynamic in in the '90s and, and race relations there, and the idea of uh, gang violence in particular and how that affects yeah. youth. Well, he still has to go outside and has to confront the guys who have a switchblade on them, and they're like. Uh, shanking it out and he's still acting as though he has a gun within his uh, coat there but uh, that that might have prevented him from getting you know stabbed to death or something mm-hmm. or well, someone it, getting shot but it's a it's a very realistic problem yeah in it and the way it resolves and the way it plays out like because the, the idea that he can just come up to the student who has no respect for him and yeah. get him to willingly give away the weapon that he's going to use to defend himself might seem patently ridiculous or like like corny yeah but it executes it with such finesse and such believability that any of the moments that could feel trite in a film like this, that's just about, oh yeah, the, the, the wholesome teacher triumphs, you know, at all, in all the face of all adversity, uh, it all plays perfectly and believably. And a lot of that has to do with Poitier's performance, but also has to do with the overall direction and the performance of each of the, the kid actors as well. Yeah. And I mean, that kid, like, pressed him while he came into the class late and uh, he tried to like test his respect for him and see if he was someone worth respecting and uh, while Pontier hadn't proved that right away in the halls when he does um, get him to hand over the gun he is able to extract that respect from him and they're able to find that like character moment for both of them and that's where there's a sudden shift in like what he's done for the school but also he's going to face repercussions for handing in a gun to the uh, authorities at the school without identifying who mm-hmm. had it it has a lot of the same story beats as both the original film and other films of this ilk. You know, there's always that kind of, oh, you know, something happens and they got, you know, they hit the rock bottom, but they got to find their way and dig it back out. Yeah. And it's yeah. got, you know, a certain amount of, like, schmaltz to it, family-friendly, you know, a- aspects, you know, warm-hearted qualities. But it all feels sincere and believable and grounded in a way that these films don't always, you know, I sometimes I can't help but be cynical about these noble teacher films, you yeah. know, and, and they're just totally unbelievable. The idea that oh, one one teacher makes a difference and can turn a whole generation around by you know just just showing them respect and reaching out, and and that's just a little too you know corny. But the film also has a certain element of realism in that not right. not. Every student is saved. There's still a conflict at the end where there's one student that couldn't quite, you know, who is still, who's just too obstinate, too unreachable. But you know, he he's no longer able to exert power over the other students. It, it probably is unrealistic that everyone else graduates, but the one like at this kind of school, you'd imagine that graduation rates are probably around like fifty percent or something. So it's very strange that only one. But I mean, that is that reality that not everyone is saved by a teacher. Maybe, and that's important to present. Maybe it works in this one classroom in this okay. one scenario. I can it I can believe it. The the film makes this particular scenario with Poitier's influence on these particular students entirely believable. Yeah, I think it, I think their relationships are believable. I like that every student has their own concerns. I, I love that one's like just figuring out, is it okay to be yourself? Is it 
Uh, who do people want you to be? And then he, he doesn't say, it's okay, it's going to be great if you're just yourself. It's going to be difficult. He understands that. I mean, as a black man who's coming into America, and I mean, there, there are these issues that are systemic. And while the film doesn't explicitly state these issues, it's never like, that's a systemic issue. It's able to lead the kids through the hand through these issues and like develop their thoughts around themselves and who they can actually be, even faced with those. And they're like, uh, I mean, it's a little bit silly. It's like, a yeah, your parents work two jobs just to survive. Like, I mean, it's just stated factually. Like, that's that's just something that's there. Yeah, but it feels like a, a real kind of, the, the dialogue feels real is kind of yeah. like the important thing. It doesn't feel like it's it's speechifying or it's it's preaching to the audience through the characters. It feels like a real interaction between the students when that moment happens where the the, the wider relations of race, uh, the aspect of the commentary comes into the fold, and not just a character-by-character uh, aspect. I'd say the one thing about the film that doesn't really work is kind of this forced-in love plot that yeah. they have. Uh, and, and the reason why is that they just, they really don't give it any build-up or anything. It just, it comes in in the third act. Yeah, it happens sudden, to explain a lot of what's come before it. Yeah, the, the sudden motivation for why he's in Chicago specifically, this long-lost fling he had, you know, the woman he loved before his wife, you know, mm -hmm. maybe was here and he finds her finally and she's on her way out and he finds he has a long-lost son too yeah. through her. And it's just all, like, really convolutedly invented in a very, you know, hastily assembled way. And there's no emotion behind it. And they play it like a really sincere, melodramatic, emotional scene. That's the only time it feels like a TV movie. All these others feel like TV movies, but that's the only point where this goes into, like, Hallmark over-sentimentality. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that should be said, is that the film looks really good. It does, From, from yeah. like, sets and the, uh, the, the direction overall, the camera work. It looks like a theatrical film there are, there are only a few cuts that betray it where it's obvious it's gone to commercial yeah yeah, yeah. like well, you've got the typical commercial fade outs but that's after it. like a yeah. dramatic moment but really it doesn't even feel scripted in that way that right. like there's a big crescendo before the commercial break it just they just coincidentally happen to line up that way it feels like I mean I'd watch it just as a movie I, I think it's I think you should it this way out of all of these movies, this is one I wholly recommend we loved it actually and you liked it more than the first one I think I, I will did. too I, think I did. I, I liked it so much. I was really blown away with what's here. I'm sure some people may disagree. I read like <laughs> sure. a couple reviews, like they were just like angry at the film. <laughs> like I think a lot of people who like watched the first film, the 1967 film, and like really connected with it. Uh, I don't know. I, I imagine some boomers were maybe upset yeah. with the racial aspects, the commentary. It's handled pretty well. No, it's handled remarkably well, I think. Um, uh, so that's and the... it, and it's very interesting in terms of Bogdanovich's career as well because. Yeah. Racial commentary is not really something that comes up. Really, yeah. It's just, it's not in his films in, in any capacity. There's, I think, a one blank character of importance in Paper Moon. Yeah. Uh, but prior to this, there really isn't that many others. There really isn't. That's uh, the a beautiful lot of opportunity of like these lower budget uh, TV films where the studios don't have a lot of say, where he just has. Of course, they don't have to say because he only has like 19, 24 days to shoot. So well, it's like, a, you're just going to get in and out. You don't get, uh, they don't get like a final cut over. Like, they're not going to say, go reshoot something. Right. right. Well, I think it also says a lot about how the business was structured and yeah. oriented. Like, well, this in the 90s, too. Like, yeah. there's, there's new opportunities. Exactly. With this, uh, lower uh, means of filmmaking. Like, a, I mean, lower uh, entry, you know? Yeah. And, and also, just the, it opened up the opportunity in the sense that, Bogdanovich was not necessarily picking his own stories anymore. Yeah, he was right. being given works 
to do all for hire. Yeah. And so it was never like it was something he was actively avoiding before now, but it was just not the things he was drawn to, you know, as a person who was such a fan of old Hollywood and, you know, general Americana, you know, it it happened that all of his interests skewed predominantly, you know, Caucasian. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and that's who he was as well. And that's the interest of the movies of that time, too. That's what was being made predominantly. it, It would not necessarily have been genuine for him to, like, say, oh, I need to go out and make a film about, you know, you know, black Americans or, you know, Hispanic Americans or something. That's not necessarily something you want from a filmmaker. <laughs> yes, you yes. Know, like from a white filmmaker. You don't want them to seek it out, but when it comes to them, you want them to see it set up. Exactly, them. yeah. And and I think Desert with Love 2 does a really fantastic job of demonstrating how he was able to work outside of his own perspective and speak to something that was inherent to the material um, and, and really help bring it to life. And that's kind of a trend that continues through these TV films, uh, particularly in the next one. Did you have anything else to say to, to sort of look for? I, I like it quite a bit. I think we both really respect it. We like Pontier. Of course, there's that poetry, then leaving on the same day, and then this being such a remarkable film that shows both their works. And uh, I mean, one of the one of the final Bogdanovich films that really shows what what he's capable of, and and his one of those last calls. Uh, really good stuff. I think. I I think it really exemplifies what he said when he said um you know there's a lot of work that i'm really proud of from that time this is something to be really proud of yeah absolutely and and um i never want to say something's underrated but i think this should be seen more than it has been yeah that's if it's underrated it's purely i think because of inaccessibility yeah just nobody knows about it i'd I'd like to to be seen more is where i'm going i think this deserves just as much respect as the first one does and is an important part of potier from the view i've seen i want to explore more potier now so that's led me down a better path i I think that's a better endorsement than just about anything yeah it's like (laughs) it's such a great showcase of the central performer that you want to seek out more of them again it's like my favorite performance I've seen from him is him trying to get the kid to hand the gun. I mean, it's just that very simple scene, really beautifully shot. You know, I, I might agree with you. I think as as important as classics like In the Heat of the Night are, or Blackboard Jungle, as I like, um, yeah. uh, I, I think he was very stymied in, yeah. in the 60s. I think he was very stuck in a mold, and he was... I think, I and think he was, you said before that you like the idea of like watching these films, but like some of the films that uh, Sidney Poitier was in were kind of like... I said I like Sidney Poitier... But I'm pretty averse to Sidney Poitier movies. Yes, and it's yes, that it's the movies. It's because of the kind of movies he was being, you know, pushed to make in in the '60s. And I'm sure that he was happy to make and he was choosing to make, but that were nonetheless, um, you know, just tied up in issues of uh, race in a way that was very. Uh, I, I guess it was progressive for the time, but I still feel like it was very, you know, uh, un nuanced, unsubtle, very, I mean, yeah. very blunt, and very oriented to, you know, the, a, an ignorant white audience. I think. Um, speaking of ignorant white audiences, <laughs> how do you feel about Blessed Assurance? Uh, Blessed Assurance, I think, is still again. It's, it's another story that's trying to speak to race, speak to you know issues of class divide. Um, but it comes across more like what you expect a TV movie to feel like. Mm-hmm. It feels like a Showtime, like a Hallmark <laughs> movie of the week thing. Very, like, cornball melodrama. Uh, like, very kind of, like, you know, shoddily, like, paced, you know, thrown together very quick. It, it It's very fastly paced. Like, it, yeah. it feels like 
when he says he's shot a film in 19 days, I think you're it, like, it feels that way. Yeah, I think it might be that one, or we'll get maybe to the one that was shot in 19 days next. Yeah, but, um, but well, I'm just saying it feels like, yeah. you know, like when you watch it, like, oh, that's this is going by much too fast for what you're trying to achieve here. Right. But, um, yeah, so Blessed Assurance, which is the story of a Korean war vet who comes back to his tiny rural hometown somewhere in the south, I don't think it said some more specific, but maybe no, it did. I don't know if it did. Uh, but he's celebrated by everybody in the town because he was on the cover of Life magazine <laughs> driving Marilyn Monroe around yeah. to see the troops. And everyone wants to know what he, what, what Marilyn Monroe said to him. Everyone's obsessed with the fact that he drove Marilyn Monroe around. They love him now because he's associated with Marilyn Monroe. And that includes his family yeah. and the friends he knew and people there. But also the the rich people, the gentrified rich people of this southern town. You know, the guys who still live in plantation houses. Yeah. They they are now interested in this rural little country boy who brushed you know against uh, Marilyn Monroe, and that kind of opens doors for him in a way, and so he's able to get accepted into this uh, like little conclave, and they give him a job. One one of them hooks him up with a job, uh, selling funeral insurance. <laughs> it's a uh... Norm from uh, Cheers is uh, the oh, yeah. uh, boss right. of the uh, insurance place. So that's funny. I mean, he's he's funny in it, but uh, it's not it's not really anything here. But we look at the we looked at the cover that's on like MDiv. It's like the most like out of focus, low res like yeah. DVD cover shit. And then we looked at the DVD that we got, and it was like a it looks like a bar of soap or something. It's like very yellow and looks like it would be like a lifetime print on DVD. It, it looks like the most obscure of these from from an artwork perspective, but yeah. uh, the quality that we saw it in is actually pretty good. The DVD looks yeah, good. it was fair, I think. Yeah, um, and and it was it was shot well enough. Um, the the whole story then, it, you know, as it continues, that he's kind of caught between his ambitions to become rich and successful, and you know, he, he like wants to you know fund for himself and become a doctor or a lawyer. He says, and he's going to do so by starting small here and selling insurance and stuff. But he's being pushed to do so to a small black community of like people who live out, you know, in, in these kind of, you know, wood cabins themselves. And particularly with this one older lady, um, um Cecily Tyson. Yes. Uh, Cecily Tyson. The actress. Yeah. Um, who, who he kind of befriends. It's, it's, it's a little unclear to me, the dynamic there. It's a little gross. I, and I, it's hard to read. Uh, yeah. And I think this dynamic is really the the kind of you know where the film kind of unwinds. It would either it would either be a winning film or fall apart completely based on this one relationship. And I mean, Cecily is probably a great actress in some other roles, but here, I mean, she kind of like folds her mouth up, and it's it's kind of a very strange look and feel to her performance. It's it's a very difficult performance to take seriously. It's incredibly exaggerated uh, to to I think try to create that sense of greater age like on the cusp of death right is, is the idea like she here. kind of folds her lips up over her teeth. yeah at like, one point you could see her teeth it's very awkward it, it seems like she's trying to make it seem like she doesn't have teeth anymore right. but like and, and, and it makes her talk in a very weird affectation and like i said it's very hard to take seriously it's it's kind of comical in some ways and it undermines the whole dynamic they have here and that dynamic is supposed to be this kind of like enlightening sense of how you know this character is exploiting them and how the the money delete you know don't really take him seriously and how 
a- any amount of money isn't worth the exploitation of yeah. others. That's that's the central dynamic of the film and the theme that's very present, but it, it, the, the film is never really able to follow through on and capitalize on. It's got it there. It's It's in the script. It's just not really well executed both i think as as an issue of the the direction on behalf of performers the inherent lack of chemistry that's just there in the casting and the truncated nature of the tv movie format this feels like something that needed a longer period of time for events to play over longer stretches where we have these conversations you know between characters and these dynamics develop and we see those juxtapositions it feels like a movie of haves and haves not but we never get that thematic richness of like a Hemingway yeah there's nothing you could like quite take away from that uh, experience there's that like very smarmy melodrama at the beginning and then it kind of becomes a Bogdanovich film for a while I mean it kind of moves at at the beginning like after that first bit when he goes to the county fair and he's like waving to the girl and he gets a new affection for this woman who's uh, like a socialite in town right and lives on this plantation but then he tries to go sell him insurance and cuts his hand I mean there's some Bogdanovichy things there that it, it, in the in the beginning it felt a lot like paper moon it did uh, yeah um in the sense that it's like it's a door-to-door it's, sales yeah door-to-door sales he's he's caught in like a what's functionally a pyramid scheme like <laughs> selling uh it's not bibles this time but it's um life insurance no 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 no. before that it's like it's like these travel books that's right there's a picture of the taj mahal that he's that he's selling or whatever uh anyway he gets frustrated at one point where he throws him off a bridge and there's like a a good shot of it like you know floating in the water there that's a nice moment and but this is all like in the first 10 minutes of the movie the first 10 minutes of the movie seem decently promising you've got something there but then it's very obvious that the, the fast pacing of everything is just going to rip through any, you know, need for thematic, you know, wait, you know, some time to spend to flesh out certain things. And the way it's, I mean, the way the characters are, I wouldn't want to spend more time with them. Right. It needs more, and then you also wouldn't want to spend that extra it's, time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's multiple problems. Like, yeah. just spending more time fleshing things out would not have helped, because I think you there's, an inherent, cast. Yeah, there's yeah. an inherent issue with the cast here, the choice and the performances... Um, and, and just the general lack of chemistry from everything going on there. Um, so it's, it's a misfire from a couple of different places, but you see the potential in the material and the idea of the direction there and Bogdanovich's ability to helm something like this, and it just not quite coming together. I mean, um, what's his name here? Grant, Grant Show is not quite like a Ryan O'Neill type for no. Bogdanovich. He just doesn't work for me. He doesn't have chemistry with I be- anyone. I believe his naivete enough as a kind of like... Yeah, he's you know, naive. But, the, the, again, like his chemistry with anyone else in the film is where issues... I think he's fine as an individual, but any relationship he has with anyone else in the film, it doesn't really... They're hard to sell, yeah. Yeah. He's uh, hard to buy into as a love interest for two women especially, but... I, and again, it's, it's another thing. It's, it's hard to gauge how much is... Poor direction, how much is poor acting? Because the two are kind of entwined. And the whole film's like, oh, he went to Korea and he's really a changed man, but it doesn't quite explore like that with any nuance either. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, he doesn't show how changed he is, really. It, it's not a film about like how war you know, affects someone coming yeah, home. Yeah, it's just something they, they say in exposition. Oh, the war changed you. They say it three times. And it's like, oh, yeah, well... Yeah, it's it's really about like coming back from some, somewhere, like, like this idea of wanting to start... A new life for himself, create well, a new opportunity from this this also, influx of celebrity. He it, ca- it kind of is like when you leave your hometown, and it's just like this rural, like a uh, old school old boy uh, 
home and then you've gone and seen Korea and seen the world and then you go back and you try to sell people like pictures of travel and shit and they've never left this little town they know nothing of the world but you know all and, this and they don't and, have the money for it yeah, either and you can't sell them an image of the outside they're so restricted and insular and it's kind of about that in a way or it's kind of that in setting but it's okay, it, it, it wants to be but it doesn't have the time to be anything yeah, that wants it, to be it doesn't really get to be about anything i mean um yet like you say it could be about have and have nots at best and that's i mean that's charitable but uh, i think that's there in the material but it's not realized yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not it doesn't come together it doesn't mean anything no. i mean it, it's there for the sentimentality of the moment at the end which is uh it's well it's it's a script that could be something and yeah. that's more than i could say for the next film <laughs> uh, which I don't think could have been anything. I think it was, uh, uh, was it put on by Showtime, I believe? Showtime I think might have so. paid uh, for this. They had a series. They had a, a few films like this. So, so was it Rescuers, Stories of Courage, Two Women? Two Women. That's two colons in that title. How do you feel about colons? That seems like I, an excessive amount of colons. I think you go me. one colon, and then I think you go with the dash. If you, mean, yeah, if you look at the titles for these these episodes for these podcasts you do we'll see because we have multiple subtitles for all yeah. of these the twin geeks 152 change of the guard the films of peter bogdanovich part five that's, we just need to put colons between all those there's yeah. there's a colon a comma and a dash <laughs> yes there. you've got three different tools in the english language there to use to break up your sentences and you're not using them i mean you also have semicolons if you're a real yeah yeah right? yeah i mean if you, if really you want to be really be pretentious head, yeah. yeah throw yeah. in that Parentheses could also be an option. Whatever you, like you want, yeah. You got brackets, too. Nobody uses brackets. Be, be an individual. Use yeah. brackets. Rescue your title, yeah. motherfuckers. So, this is Rescuers, Stories of Courage, Two Women. It's, it's just two stories. It's uh, two movies. Yeah, it's, it, it is of. two stories in there. And then there's two other Rescuers movies. <laughs> yeah. Stories of Courage. And Down Under. Two, yeah, yeah. Rescuers, so, Down it, Under. Was it two, two women, two... Secrets? To, Se- I don't but know. What I'm trying to it doesn't matter. i got to look it we'll up. We'll never talk no, about what those are. Well, somebody's got to. If we don't mention it here, these films will never be mentioned ever again. So it's and important It's important that we record. Some of those re- were co-directed, but this one, Bogdanovich directed the whole yeah. thing himself. The series was um, executive produced by Barbara Streisand, which... Weird. Is, yeah. yeah, it's a thing, I guess. Uh, that's just information. Barbara Streisand? Out. Barbara Streisand, yeah. Sand? <laughs> Barbara Streisand. Okay, I found Barbara Streisand. Two two women, two couples, two families. Those are those are the three films. Mm-hmm. This is the only one Bogdanovich. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. That'll improve everyone's life greatly. Uh, it's it's important to me, okay? Are no. those even available? I think this is the only one that's available. I don't know. I yeah. found this one on YouTube. <laughs> you know, this was the one on YouTube. It exists on VHS, but I found it on YouTube. And you can find it too. But you shouldn't watch it, because it's not worth your time. Yeah, you shouldn't find it. It's Try not to. It's about... It's two different stories about people saving Jews in Nazi-occupied Poland. Yeah, one's about uh, diocese, and the other one's about... Uh, uh, do you speak German or not? Um, I don't know. It's it's very bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very bland, uninteresting... Um, I don't. Maybe the set design is good. I. It looked uh, kind of like. I, I'm. I'm strong. I'm finding something here. I'm. I'm. I'm looking. It shot very. Dark. The swastikas were accurate. They're they were accurately very nice swastikas. Displayed yeah. swastikas. Yeah. That's. That's where my praise ends. 
Uh, is that your praise, though? Is, I mean, is a good swastika? Is there any good swastika? The the Hindu swastikas. Okay, so that, those are good ones. Those let's are not, good. Let's not leave those ones out here. They are they are the valid swastikas. So uh, this film, shot very darkly, looks completely like some TV bullshit. Like it doesn't yeah. even look like Bogdanovich it's, cared or it shot it. It reminded me of a PBS recreation. PBS are better. They, yeah, they yeah, have better. Stories. But I just mean like the in the kind of like corny like historical recreations of a setting with. Uh, particularly in the bad performances. Yeah. The Nazis here are really ridiculous. And not in, like, the typical, like, Nazis are inherently ridiculous kind of way. In the the dialogue and the regard for the different languages is just baffling. They'll, they'll throw in a few German words that are recognizable by an English audience, but I, mostly everyone speaks English. It was weird because, okay, so there's the convention of films. Particularly, I'll say, like, English language films where... We just, even if the story is set in a non-English speaking area, yeah. people speak English. And we're like, okay, we, I understand that the English here is just a substitute for whatever the local language is. Right. So when people are conducting languages in this film, or people are conducting conversations in this film, we just assume it's German. Because yeah. that just makes sense. But then at some point, a soldier says to one of the, the women in the film, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Which, you know, is just asking if she can speak German in German. And she says... Yes, and, and continues the conversation in English. In English -ish. Yes. So they ask her if she can speak in German, and ostensibly well, she responds in German, but it's actually English. And her whole career in the film is about translating other people's like letters <laughs> into German, and we never see that uh, capacity from her. It's, it's very clear she cannot do it. It's very bizarre, It's and it, and it just kind of breaks your brain about how language is supposed to function in this, and it makes you think too much about... How language functions in films in general and it would be better just not to have to think about it if it were all english i could have right been, because then yeah. you can just say you can just say obviously it's just meant to be german and we're just yeah. seeing it because it's an american production but no they had to throw some in they had to confuse the whole thing and then it's just kind of made even weirder by some of the bizarre uses of english that they use like this this kind of like you know um uh, the the way in which the language is used that's not like like Traditional, it's it's more um, off the cuff kind of uh, what's the word? Uh, I, I particularly mean in the way that expletives are used. Yeah, uh, it's very laughable. It's very funny. I think there there are like three variations of oh you Jew bitch. I mean, it's yeah, very yeah, strange. yeah, you 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 Jew bitch. Like like shut up you Jew loving bitch. It's you you fucking you know why? Jew loving. Yeah, <laughs> it's and and the way in which these expletives are used again in in English. When as these German soldiers screaming it, at it, and it feels very unnatural. The dialogue is not very well done to make you feel immersed in here at all. It's all just a very jarring experience. But uh, above all, you can tell we're fixating on these smaller points because the broader film is very boring. Yeah, there's it's, just nothing going. There's really nothing to say. Again, the second like, part is longer and i mean it's it's stellar. there's even less to say yeah. everything we've described just is in the first story yeah and the second one i just About i don't the diocese and, i mean just who cares <laughs> yeah um it's I, it's I really get like more out of a wikipedia on these women and that's a problem we come to it a it's, couple times it's just one of these kind of like you, why would you watch this if you've seen it before you know these kind of like trite <laughs> historical retreadings of noble like you know stories within the midst of the horrors of world war ii nazi germany like you you've seen these kinds of movies and these clips thousands of times on tv in other movies 
whatever. Uh, I may, was it like a 90s thing? I feel like there was a lot of this in the 90s. There was definitely a lot of that bad reenactment shit after like the Thin Blue Line, like that the, that style of filmmaking. I, I want to say, like, did did Schindler's List like invoke some of this? Was there just like a, 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 a Holocaust renaissance? Oh, yeah, on that subject specifically. It yeah. To be, uh, yeah, that's what I'm, think, I'm feeling like. I'm it just, seemed to be far away enough that we could start visualizing it in some... Some weird ways we seem to have permission well, slips now. Well, one of the things where we just notice patterns in retrospect. It's like, oh, I guess there were a lot of films about the resilience of the, the Jews and saving everyone in Nazi Germany throughout the 90s. Maybe that was kicked off by, you know, the, the sensation of yeah. Schindler's List. That, that makes sense in my mind saying that. And I feel like this might be a byproduct of that. And again, like, this, this was a series of films about it. And I guess the fact that it was... Produced by Barbara Streisand might have something to do with that too. I don't Streisand. Really know. Stry- <laughs> I, I guess so. I guess it could be. I can't tell if you're correcting me or just doing the bit. Like, am I actually saying it wrong, or are you just <laughs> Streisand? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's what I. That's what I have trouble with here. Is I have trouble figuring out like why Bogdanovich did it. But I mean, it's I mean, just, the, uh, the, for ans- higher the, the, the answer to why did Bogdanovich make this movie for all of these is. Money. money, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's this, such a boring answer, though. Like, he, to only say everyone makes movies for money is just, you know. He filed for bankruptcy for the second time in 1997. Okay. is is an important thing to note. Like, and and that's, it, it is cynical to say, but that's the same reason why he made Mask. You know, there was, there was a I bit more motivation. Is, there's just no why there for him. Like, there's no There's no identity. That, yeah. And, and, and having said this, we've, even in the low slows, even watching something that's so hacked up and mediocre as something like Illegally Yours, which we watched, there was still an element of Bogdanovich identity in that, and it was worth watching to gain a wider appreciation of his work, to see how the lows still exemplify his unique voice. Mm-hmm. This is nothing. This is not a Bogdanovich movie in any identifiable manner. This is not even, like, a movie movie in an identifiable <laughs> manner. Like I said, this feels like... Like slapdash TV production. It feels like two TV episodes that are too long of a historical yeah. drama. Yeah, and, and this thing that I don't know if I would have wanted to cover it if I knew it was actually two different stories in two parts. Does that count as a whole movie? No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think this counts as a movie. But we did it. We fucking did it anyway. And it we're going to talk though. about it. It is a movie. It's we just we're only the second, third reviews on Letterbox for this thing. Yeah. By the way, I nobody know. has seen this, so. Don't think that, like, other people have different takes. Like, there there are no fucking takes on the internet. It's just us. This is the final word the on first this movie. Take, even if you want to go find the first yeah. take, I don't know what language it's, it's in. Not in English, it's not in yeah. English, so we can't tell you what probably, the first person to ever see this movie Probably did. whatever language this one came up on. But but, yeah. but this was a movie he did mention in interviews, Bogdanovich, and he had some fondness of making it. Why? I don't know why, watching it. Like, I, I went in with... At least some, like like an inkling of optimism, because I'm like, oh, you know, Bogdanovich said something good about this, so so maybe there is something still worth hearing. You know, and I just have... as our friend Pavla says, artists don't speak. Just, <laughs> just leave it alone. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very true in this case. Um, this this one was probably the most miserable watch of the whole batch, it, and it felt extraordinarily long. At least blessed assurance with God, the way it was paced, it was it was just rapid. Like that movie was over before it began it really. moved yeah i mean it was it was short it moved it was fine and, and it shouldn't been as quick as it was but it was 
At least it was that quick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this this was miserably it dragged, and there was nothing in here. I didn't get. I didn't have any takeaways. I didn't get anything of value from it. I haven't retained no. anything. I might even give it my lowest score. I think. I think you would be right to. I mean, it's. It's not offensive. Like I'm not like no. angry at the movie. I'm just angry at like it's just, how it's, nothing it is. It's just so low tier, mediocre, and particularly low tier, mediocre of this kind of like melodrama Nazi survival film. Yeah. And there's there's so much crap like this. There's there's <laughs> there's you know. Bottom of the barrel. There's TV small works, sized yeah. countries that are filled with movies of this quality. Yeah. You know about this subject. So. Yeah, I. The only note, the only thing, the only reason why anyone would ever talk about this movie is because of the director. It's because Peter Bergner is literally the only reason we are here still mentioning anything about this movie. That's it. That's about it. Well, with that, I think we're halfway through these. Let's just take a short break and come back with these other three. Do our rankings. Right. We're back with Naked City. Um, a Killer Christmas. A Killer Christmas, which is kind of a Christmas movie. It has some themes. There is a Santa who robs people and uh, gets arrested. That's Christmas. I just told you I saw the fantastic Elliot Gould, um, The Silent Partner, which is about uh, a mall Santa, and he works at um, Elliot Gould works at a bank in the mall, and he just comes in silently and writes on a scratch pad. He has to like reveal it and look at it later. He's like, oh shit, this Santa wanted to rob me. And it's like a really good Christmas tale of like a GLOS like crime story. Um, so I wish that this were that. I wish we were discussing that film. It, remi- it reminded me as well of um, the French Connection in, yeah. the, in the beginning, where you got Gene Hackman as Santa, yeah, this guy's, but like the opposite. So I guess more like Hot Fuzz, where they do the reversal of that, and you got there's <laughs> the opening mantra where they have Peter Jackson as Santa stab <laughs> yeah. stab Simon Pegg through the hand, but. Also in the same vein, that's about as Christmassy as this movie gets. Yeah, it's not Santa with muscles with Hulk Hogan. No. Sure. Um, there's some Christmas trees around, but... Christmas lights, yeah, sometimes. Not, but not really that much. It's not so much. There's uh, One of the guys is running around trying to get a kid for the front. It reminded me of something like uh, the Schwarzenegger one, Jingle All the Way, mm-hmm. I think, where this is the whole mission of the movie is to find the, the Turbo Man action figure. <laughs> And he's doing that. It's, it's like a virtual thing. The vir- virtual pet? Vir- virtual boy? Was it a virtual boy? Virtual pet. I, think that, they I don't think that was right. It wasn't like a big failed Nintendo console, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the whole thing is that, uh, it, to, to go back a little bit, this has a connection with old noir films in that it's based off of the same characters from 1948 Jules Dassin film, The Naked City. Uh, if you don't know Jules Dassin, go back and listen to our episode on Rafifi. Yeah. One of the best noir films, which uh, he directed. Yeah. Um, released on the Virtual Boy. <laughs> yes. Um, so this takes the same characters from The Naked City and puts them into contemporary New York. This was the second of, I think, an, a series of films that was done with these, with Scott Glenn as the Richard Whit- Woodmark character. I hadn't seen the other. So. Uh, I haven't either, because we're not doing a podcast on the Naked City movies. We're doing a podcast on Peter Bogdanovich movies, and Peter Bogdanovich directed Naked City A Killer Christmas. He did not direct whatever the previous Naked City movie mm-hmm. was. So, that's not that, whatever context uh, that film had, that would have made this one better. You think um, it had context? 
for this? Probably not. Um, again, if I wonder if, if we're missing something. I don't know. There's like you know, a layer there. This is the second like sequel you watched. Like you, you watched To Serve with Love too, and yeah. and there was no context there really that you the well, movie didn't already have. We so. go back to like Texasville where it's like all context from the first one, but that's his creation first. It's so like this is you know we have two sequels to movies other people made. I feel like you wouldn't get. I I, I want to retract at least a little bit from Texasville. I, I want to say. You wouldn't get any of the emotional conflicts of it, but I think you could watch it without watching watch it. Last Picture Show, and you could appreciate. I but you could. Yeah, or, or you could appreciate it in the sense that, like, it could stand alone. Like, oh, there's like you know this this character, and he had this relationship with this person before. Like, that's there, but the emotional impact really comes from these same characters portrayed by these same performers mm-hmm. returning to the same story thirty years later, or whatever, etc. Anyway, so that's that's a case where it's like. You should. You, you're not getting the full experience if you don't watch the first film. Whereas to serve with love two, you don't have to watch to serve with love. And I'm sure that's also the case with Naked City, A Killer Christmas. <laughs> you don't have to watch the Jules Dassin film. You probably don't have to watch whatever the other one is. And you probably shouldn't watch whatever this one is because it's just. It's not bad, but it's not interesting. Not good. It, yeah, it's never good either. There's no like special moments or things that I think are particularly bugged on it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I said in the beginning, it's kind of interesting in that, like, Peter Bogdanovich never made, like, a noir movie. Yeah. He never made something in that kind of tradition. So I was Despite, hopeful that it could be, like, a fun crime thing. Yeah, but he, he was just so much more a fan of, like, the comedies, it seemed like, the Lubitsches and the Preston mm-hmm. Sturges and the, you know, uh, Howard Hawkses. Even though he had great admiration for the likes of Edgar Ulmer and Fritz Long and... You know, even the other films that, uh, like, like Hawks made. Hawks was a maverick. He worked in every genre, but Bogdanovich, you know, really fixated on his uh, comedies, it seemed like, more than his comedies and westerns. That's the other thing, is that Bogdanovich never really made a western, but he tried to. Yeah. He wrote one with Larry McMurtry in the 70s. They made Lonesome Dove, which okay. which they turned to a book instead and was very successful, but it was going to be a movie originally. Yeah, I mean, you see westerns kind of playing in some of his movies. I mean, They're um, prominent, and, and it yeah. came up, like, we, we mentioned it last week when we talked about Liberty Balance popping up in The Thing Called Love. Yeah. Red River is obviously very big, prominent in... Um, the Last Picture Show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he made allusions to another one, and, like, he talked about, like, opening... I, I can't remember which movie it is that has, like, like it's like a silent opening, and it was like an homage to Rio Bravo he talked about in, okay. in interviews. Uh, I think He's kind of always skirting around and showing his appreciation. Even. In, I in, wish he got to make one. I feel like in the same way that, that Scorsese does, you know, because yeah. The Searchers <laughs> comes up all the time yeah. in Scorsese, Scorsese Everyone's wa- Everyone watches Westerns, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> you know? it, com- it comes up in, like, all the movies. It's there in Mean Streets. It's there in Who's okay. That Knocking on My Door. Uh, it, it probably comes up in like casino or something. And he's making a western now. Yeah, yeah. but that's the thing is that he's making a western. Uh, Fantastic, can't wait. And and Bogdanovich never did. I don't know if he never had an interest in it uh, or just never. Oh no, obviously he did because he wanted to make loans of and, and they were and they were uh, a little bit out of style when he was uh, at his height. Yeah. they had just passed that moment La- of. La- I guess Last Picture know. Show was like the closest thing he made to a western. And that was that that was that last time that you could probably make one reasonably uh, you know there were moments in the 90s but by that point he was well, kinda... well because by the time he came again like one of the movies that really brought down this the auteur system you know the the new hollywood system was heaven's gate the same right. time as he did they all left and like michael cimino basically just you know bombed the, the crap out of any potential anyone had left to make anything with any artistic integrity it's shame like the, i wish westerns were always popular because there's so many auteurs that i'd like to see i've made them yeah. But uh, they're back again. Can't be on, baby. Yeah, yeah. 
Just uh, make sure you take your champs off if you ever go inside. Yes. <laughs> There's a... I mean, the best idea Naked City has is what if a cop also drove a taxi and had access to a taxi cab? Yeah. Yes, that's got a novel uh, idea in that instead of a, a patrol car, Scott Glenn and uh, Cornby B. Vance are driving around in a taxi cab. And that kind of allows them to get in on the action of things that are happening when people are in desperate situations they you know they, you know there's always there's always people in movies get into taxis and they're like oh go follow this car or drive that way and so so they they end up catching a lot of things that way but yeah uh that's just like a very niche novel thing that we kind of noted when watching the film the, the story itself is very like Again, kind of movie of the week. If I felt like it was like a, an NCIS episode almost. <laughs> yeah, very much. I think Scott Glenn is actually okay in it. I think yeah. he's likable. I, I like him. He's got good screen presence. Um, he's more compelling as a central performer than a lot of the people in these uh, TV movies. He's an actual name, I guess, is a thing too. A minor name for it. Like, you know, he has a supporting role in Silence of the Lambs. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's Scott Glenn. We talked a little bit about how... Um, well, Bogdanovich was able to handle racial issues. He never really handled, like, uh, um, sexuality or uh, homophobia in any meaningful way in any of his movies. And it kind of comes up here in some uncomfortable ways. Yeah, s- slightly uncomfortable. It's like, like on not, the verge not enough, of being really offensive. No, not, not enough to quite be offensive, but enough to make you be like, oh, that seems like a, a, a 90s issue. Definitely but, you're cringing just waiting for the shoe to drop. It doesn't quite drop. Right, um... It's like, and and it's all it's kind of interesting how it just it's never come up in a movie, like not even as a point of like ridicule or kind of as a tangential thing, not even as his films aged into the the new millennium and stuff. It just it wasn't ever something a subject. At least when you had cases like in Paper Room where there were you know a a black character or two, you know there or other minorities in other films. You know you had like the the Italian character. In at Long Last Love and such. And the Italian Nazis and uh, yeah. <laughs> <and> rescuers. <laughs> um, but yeah, they were they were there at least as components in, you know but the the, the sexual, you know, uh, differences, uh, non non hetero characters. Well it's a very not even it's a very heteronormative, um, polyamorous filmography. <laughs> yeah. It's really about love triangles. So sometimes there's that tension with like uh, two men going after the same girl, that, that kind of comes up, but it, it's never, like, explicitly uh, homoerotic in any way, but there's always, like, multiple men with women. That That's kind of a theme that he kind of plays with. Yeah, for sure. That's a that's a consistent theme of it, and it's very reflective of Bogdanovich in real life, too, and that's an yeah. interesting facet that, that's kind of come to our attention in watching the films. One of those things that's kind of become clear, but uh, this is the first instance where any sense of acknowledgement of... of homosexual characters or, you know, livelihoods or existence uh, takes place, and it's in the form of a serial killer who is targeting gay men. And the newspapers print, like, headlines, like, the gay murderer or something, question mark. Yeah, like, I uh, I think it's, uh, the the idea is that it's a frame-up. It wasn't entirely clear watching, um, but that's the idea. There's, like, a whole bit in the beginning of the film where, like, the media is just like recklessly reporting things. Like, like I yeah. think like the opening lines were like a, a a reporter saying, "The police have asked us not to say the you know the name of this person, but we're going to anyway because it's important for the you know people to know." And they show a big picture of who supposedly the serial killer is, and then he gets stopped in the street by people and mobbed. Probably ethically confusing for that reporter, but yeah, I mean she's 
yeah, she's always doing these broadcasts. Like, uh, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to break the news, damn it. So, yeah, but but the gay serial killer thing doesn't really come to fruition. It seems like it seems like a red herring yeah. in, in the film. Like, it does. There's a, there's a kind of very coded queer character that they have prominently in the beginning of the film, and it seems like they could be really problematic, but they get killed very early, so then yeah. it just kind of dissipates. Like, the problem gets kind of solved by just their removal from the film. And again, it's it, it doesn't feel like they're being targeted because they're gay, even though it's how it's advertised, because yeah. it just never comes first. Like, the film just drops it after that. It's a weird thing to set up and then do nothing with it. That's which is so why I, I think it's supposed to be a red herring, and right. it just doesn't... Again, the how the plot shakes out, it's very, like, I'm... You know, it, it doesn't really come together in, in a compelling way. The, the whole shtick is that... The killer who we think is the killer isn't actually the killer, and there's like a whole mistaken identity thing, and he's like disguised as this person. But there's like the Mission Impossible Three mask. Yeah, reveals. yeah. But it it really doesn't land with any kind of significance. You don't care about it. There's no mystery about it because we're told about it. You know, you know, uh, outside of the character, that's information we as the audience have that the investigators don't. Yeah. Um and. They're not a compelling person as a villain. I don't think they're not interesting. There's there's no interesting kind of motive to follow. And again, there's no like investigative aspects. <laughs> That's true. Kind of honestly, like I, I compared it to an NCIS episode, but like the mysteries there are kind yeah. of uh, at least a little more compelling. A little That's bit true. more going on. This is it's it's not bad necessarily. There's like uh, enough good dialogue and direction that I can be kind of like charmed by it and taken in as we go along but there's no substance whatsoever and any pulp appeal it has is very like you know flavorless it kind of doesn't quite get right the atmosphere of new york either you said it's maybe shot in ottawa it's not it's, all, it's not shot in new york so okay it may be ottawa or, or uh, canadian territory but like all governmental buildings and like the the skyscrapers don't look like new york it's it's very confusing there are a few inserts yeah, that look it's like, like oh look like times square. square yeah, yeah. <laughs> but other than that, it doesn't really have a sense of identity or place. So. Yeah. I, I like that in, like, a um, crime film. I really need a sense of place and well, and, and, that's, and that's kind of the irony, because Naked City was shot uh, on the streets of New York. The original, yeah. the Jules Dessen film. It was shot in a unex like, like, like an unconventional way. It was shot more like a documentary, very kind of on-the-go, handheld, lots of stuff from a distance as well. And, and so you see a lot of the fixtures of New York in that movie in a way you don't really in a lot of the noirs of the time. And it kind of birthed the subgenre of kind of documentary-like noir films. Uh -huh. uh, and it's really cool, and it's really compelling for that. There's, like, a great chase scene on, like, I think it's, like, the Brooklyn Bridge towards the end. One of the big okay. bridges in, in New York. I wish there was something like that. I feel like Bogdanovich has gotten away from his car chases. Yeah. Especially car crashes. It, it really, and I think that's probably just a result of the budget. Budgets, yeah. yeah but I don't want to wreck any cars with this budget. This really could have used a good chase scene, some good something. noir, you know, taxis following like, taxis, some shit in there. Yeah, and it and it doesn't have really a lot of action. I think that's exactly on. what it needs. It needs a really good chase scene, a sense of the environment. Well, that's the thing is, it, it's it. it's really trying to like just trade on like the kind of pulp appeal of these stories. You yeah. know, the 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 drama of like like murder and you know criminals and stuff but there's no like action no spectacle to back that with so it's very flat it's very empty mm -hmm. and so all you've really got are like you know the the charisma of scott glenn and courtney vance is you know performers there uh 
and and that's really like the most compelling thing of the film. Yeah. And it's and it's just not enough. It's 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 table scraps that you're kind of hanging on to. Yeah, it's just not quite there. And I mean, it's not. Um, again, I don't I don't dislike this film quite as much as Rescuers. I I think there's something working here. Just not enough. No, certainly not enough. Um, but you know, I I thought it was interesting at least to, to see Bogdanovich kind of in this different mode yeah, of movie. Yeah, this one was a fun kind of, on, wasn't it? It was it was a kind of movie I haven't seen Bogdanovich make yeah. before. A crime thriller. And I wanted to. I, I, I wanted to see that. Yeah. So. And I, I just wish he, he made a better one. Because yeah. it feels like he could have. He could and, have done. And yeah. this and this just ain't it. Um thankfully our uh, next movie he does uh, everything I need him to do. This uh, this is probably the least likely movie Bogdanovich would ever make in his career. Like, and the, the most likely for me to watch. Yeah, uh, this, uh, a, a saintly switch is the entire reason this Bogdanovich retrospective has taken place. Because I want to see it. I mean, I, I'm a huge David Allen Greer fan, uh, man of stage, and uh, in love and color, a fantastic performer. Uh, I followed David Allen Greer for many years. I think he's very funny. And uh, he, he is really the perfect vessel for this kind of body switch uh, comedy, which precedes, actually the newer Freaky Friday by at least a few years. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, so it is interesting, uh, particularly because the, the DVD we watched had a, a trailer <laughs> had, for yeah. it beforehand, the, the Lindsay Lohan one. The, this could have taken a few years to come out on DVD, and then, yeah, that was out. I, I think that's that what, but, but it made me think, again, it, the two kind of go hand in hand, because they're both Disney movies about body switching. But I did think it was interesting, because this is effectively like the, you know, um, uh, whereas that's very like the, the the two white you know character you know the the Lindsay Lohan and that you've got the other spectrum of that through you know Dave Allen Greer and Vivica Fox you've got a different representation of that same kind of story yeah. here um, again not inherently for like I say like a a, a black audience per se because it's still it's a very universal you know Disney film but it's nice to see that that mold can fit for anyone. And you it's an interesting attempt at a Disney thing. Like, it, I mean, it gets a little bit more salacious than Disney usually would. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. There's a moment in the film uh, because again, the, the whole plot is that um, David Allen Greer is a is a football quarterback, uh, and he transfers to the New York Saints. And, uh, New Orleans, yeah. Yeah, um, I said New York. Didn't yes, I? yes. <laughs> New Orleans. I oh my god, that's a disgrace on my. And you're from I, New Orleans. My, your my, family. Yeah. New Orleans Saints, the New Orleans Saints, um, and Vivica Fox is his wife, who's also a painter, although that's less important to the story than the fact that David Allen Greer is a quarterback, and <laughs> through the magic of voodoo, which is a prominent cultural fixture of uh, New Orleans, it's it's there, it makes sense, I can deal with it, uh, they end up switching bodies, and so she has to become uh, a motivating quarterback for the team, and he has to become a you know can-do parent, and mm -hmm. also pregnant. He gets <laughs> pregnant yes. in her body. But there, there's a scene that's very interesting, in the, kind of like the halfway point, where they make the suggestion of, of having sex yeah. in each other's bodies. Yeah, they're definitely thinking about it and playing around with the idea. And, uh, it, and it's kind of like, whoa, you're really implying that in a Disney movie for Where, kids. Like this is this is legitimately a Disney movie. Like it was made in like a series of like those made for TV Disney movies. They where had, people have been fighting for five years for Marvel to show a kiss, and, and I mean they finally do it in the Turtles. But it's like, damn. I mean, you know, maybe we've regressed physically. I, I think we have. There's very blatant implication that they fuck, Vivica yeah. A. Fox wants to fuck herself with 
David Allen Greer in her body. But it doesn't go the other way. I mean, he... He's hesitant because yeah, he's, he's not attracted to, to himself, self, so. which is cool. I respect that, yeah. David Allen Greer. I respect that you don't want to have sex with your own body, but you like like and and we watched, I watched you. Uh, yeah. oh, I, I guess this, but uh, <laughs> but I think everyone. This is a universal idea. This idea of like, what would you do in another person's body, another gender's body? Well, you were over last night. I mean, you spent the night for a couple nights. So you know that I kept asking my wife, yeah. and what she would do. You kept asking her, and which she was, gave her a lot of pause. And, and and she didn't want to give an answer that you would. But I'm curious. I, I yeah. will ask you then. What would you do? Would okay. you would you go ahead? Would you have sex with your wife? I if, really if don't think I should get into it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair fair enough. We'll move on to the more kid friendly aspects of this movie. Yeah, which um, are which are plentiful. It's a very kid friendly, wholesome, entertaining, humorous kids movie. That still has appeal for adults. It's not juvenile. Well, my second favorite part is uh, when the young boy introduces his sister. He calls her a skink. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a <laughs> jarring nowhere. thing to come out out the gate on. Like it starts with a kind of corny voiceover. That's yeah. my dad. He plays, you know, for the, the you know, that's me. And they and he's like, that's my sister. Or that skank over there is my sister. Yeah. That's, that's literally the dialogue <laughs> in the opening. And it's like, whoa, whoa. Very unneeded. Uh, very pleasant for me because... Like, well, it's weird as well because he's not hostile to her throughout the rest of the film. No, no, it's just they that one a, thing. They have a pretty good sibling relationship otherwise. Yeah, it never really comes up that she's a skank again. So uh, She's kind of like tomboy, she even. And she's kind of seems to be like fighting against the mold of being a girl. Like She's fighting against the pom poms and the cheerleader. Meanwhile, the boy just wants to tap dance. It's really sweet. I... I think if there's a, a big weakness to the film, and I feel like there's not enough about the and kids. there isn't a big weakness, just that, but now, if you felt now, like there were, yeah, is that it's it's less focused on the kids. They kind of come in and out of the story, yeah, as needed, and it's much more centered on the parents and their dynamic. But that is a strong dynamic of the film. So uh, if it took taking kids more out of the picture, then maybe that's for the best. But uh, it, they, they feel more superfluous and kind of just facilitators of the plot between their parents than. Uh, and, and kind of like like subjects of their their conflict. Um, so yeah, because the, the big thing, the big dynamic is how the the couple here who are kind of on the verge of separating, they really don't get along, they don't understand each other anymore. Come to have compassion and appreciation, perspective for one yeah. another by living through through them, like well, seeing the struggles they have in their own lives and how they have to deal with things, and also improving their own lives. And, and their partner's lives through lending their unique perspectives to their worlds. He's always on the road, and she resents that. And she's always home, and uh, just as he says, painting daisies. He he thinks that she just paints flowers yeah. and has an easy life, which you know, uh, women and motherhood really one of the harder things someone could do. So, but it, it feels like there's a lot more emphasis on the the father in in terms of yeah. the, the sports stuff. Like well, the there's actual just, there's nothing that visually interesting about what she does. Well well they kinda again it's another thing where it seems like the film drops it. There's like a yeah. little bit where she's she becomes a, a teacher at the school and she's getting recognized by the teacher, you know, by the principal, who is yeah. like an art aficionado for her works that she makes. But it it was kind of just happens by accident. Yeah. Like does. not by any change that David <laughs> Allen Greer does in Vivica's body, you uh-huh. know. Like he just the the principal happens to notice them in the back of the car, and, but he does and then he passes that, that word along to even though it's her. circumstantially just find that recognition that she's been looking for. Yeah, yeah, it just feels less 
Well, like, like her, it's not purposeful that she's good at football. She's just able to bring the team together because she's suddenly the only quarterback in the league to suddenly try to be nice to their team. Right, and, but that's the to inspire them. That's the leadership. personal perspective that she lends that makes yeah. the change. Whereas David Allen Grew's character doesn't actually do anything to to facilitate <laughs> her recognition of her yeah. work. It just happens. Um, but that's that's kind of the corny, fun premise of the film. I think where where it gets a lot of its legs is from. Like like uh, David Allen Greer acting as Vivica Fox in his body, rallying the New Orleans Saints to become a great team through kindness and positive motivation. Well and before I, and, well before Jack Black gets into the Jumanji, and uh, well before Vince right. Vaughn uh, takes a young woman's body over in Freaky the Greatest Freaky <laughs> Friday movie, and uh, Christopher Landon, my cinematic hero, uh, making teenage horror movies that need to be made. I, I think for me, one of the things to appreciate about this is to appreciate where the Saints were kind of historically as a football team. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, they But before Drew Brees came along, who, who then kind of championed them into like the Super Bowl and such and made them one of the main fixtures, one of the two beat teams of the NFL, uh, they were they were bottom of the ladder, bottom rung, zero respect throughout the, the industry there. So when they say they're the worst team in the league in, in the movie, that's like... Real, that's like real yeah. to life, um, and so the idea that they can turn it around through positive reinforcement, go to the Super Bowl, is is funny and ridiculous, but also like a decent plot for the New Orleans Saints in 1999. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we both wanted a little bit more of New Orleans in the movie, a little bit more of the yeah. culture and. I mean, yeah. it's there, but, you, you but like see, the voodoo thing kind of fades away for a while. You, you see the, the, the architecture of, like, like Bourbon Street and stuff. You get to pass by some of the monuments. You see, you know, Jackson Square and stuff. There's just some more cool things. I mean, but New Orleans is such a unique place, visually so interesting to see. And Bogdanovich could have done a lot with that uniqueness. Sure, but I, I wonder how much, again, as well, like, how much of that was a second unit? How much were they just shooting in a studio? Because it's very apparent in some scenes, like, for instance, the, the football you know, scenes that they just shot that shit <laughs> in a studio. They it's, just laid down. Fantastic. They laid down some mismatch, mismatched green carpet. Yeah, and and they shot some some football well, it's, practices. It's there. very fake astroturf because it's like showing like the shots of him throwing the ball, and then it will cut to like actual like game footage actual or, game footage from, perhaps, from really high. Perhaps just a scrimmage. <laughs> I don't know if these are like authentic NFL games, but there's definitely like an actual scrimmage it cuts to when it wants real football. With, I think it is because it's it's got stadiums full of people. Like there's people in there. It does. Yeah, there okay. there are people in the audiences in the actual footage. It always shoots really low in the in the shots created yeah. for the movie, so it doesn't have to show the audience. But then when it does, it's like like half the stands are empty. Of course, the team's bad. That could be realistic. The the stadium sure, could but, be empty, but but it, but the the lack of real like there's not enough people is part of the problem. Yeah. Like it, when you look around, you see the backgrounds like the walls lined up against you know where the stadium seats are, and there's just nobody there. Yeah. Whereas in an actual NFL game, there's just a ton of people. There's floods of people on the sidelines. Yeah. They didn't you know? get millions of people for this. No, no, movie. no. And again, like, you can't fault them so much for it. But, like, it was just so cartoonish that it took me out just, just a little bit. And I think part of it was because the uniforms are real. Those are actual, they look actual good. NFL yeah. uniforms. Um, this is very obviously had the endorsement of them. I'm guessing this was after Disney, like, like purchased into whatever they own like NBC or something right 
uh, ESPN they own now. Yeah. Um, I don't when know was they... that? I don't know. Anyway, they obviously have their fingers in the NFL by this point. Yeah. And so you've got that legitimacy lent to the film. And so the lack of legitimacy in everything else feels very bizarre. Did you know uh, NFL games show on Nickelodeon now? They're like presented for a kid's audience? I, I did see something and they, and they do interesting commentary. Yeah. Like they have like slime up on yeah. the screen and stuff like that. It's really but cool. That seems great. That's how I would want to watch one. I would want to watch I would that watch that. Yeah. We should do that. When does when does NFL season start? Is it still going? It the just Super- ended. Yeah, the Super Bowl just happened, yeah. right? You can tell how much I care. Yeah, um, but you would say a Saintly Switch best football movie? Um, you know, I, <laughs> I I gotta give my boy Denzel respect still with Remember the Titans, but I'll put it above Rudy. How about that? We'll we'll agree with that. Put it above Radio and Rudy, and yeah, I think that I think that's fair. Yeah. Otherwise, this is genuinely good. Like I don't I don't mean that just in the sense of oh it's a cute Disney movie. Like not not even like I I, I mean it in a, in a, it's a genuinely good wholesome entertainment movie. I think anyone could really appreciate it. It's not going to blow your socks off, but it's going to be a nice time. It's never, like, so juvenile that it's something that only your kid would enjoy. Yeah, it's genuinely funny. It's close to being great for me. <laughs> I don't have, I'm, uh, I'm on, like, the, the stretch where just a few more jokes, a little bit more New Orleans, a little bit better sports coverage. I think it's a, it's almost there to be a very it's, good movie. It's a little too simplistic for me to say, like, it gets close to greatness. I don't want it that much more complicated. No, no, I'm not yeah. saying it should be, but, like, it's... Like, it's, I think you want, like, better uh, sports coverage in there, but for me, like, that would kind of ruin it if it, right. were, if it were very authentic and simulation. Here, like, it's, it's exactly what I expect from a body switch movie without making any weird missteps and having an interesting coat of paint with yeah. the whole NFL angle on it. Those are the things that appeal to me about it. And it basically hits all the right marks, but it doesn't do anything else exceptionally great beyond that. David Allen Greer, very good, though. Um, yeah. I think I was, that's the exceptional part. But. I was more won over by Vivica A. Fox, I like, really leaning yeah. into the bravado of it and, like, <laughs> wearing the cowboy outfit She's okay, and stuff. Yeah. I, I liked her more. You liked David Allen Greer more. I think that balances it out pretty well to yeah. say that they both do a really good job. Well, uh, football season just ended, but... Um, you know what they say? There's two seasons. There's winter and baseball season. Is that and is that something they say? Yeah, because I don't... the baseball season's three hundred games long, so that's like most of the year. Is, then... is it really three hundred? No, it's like one, one eighty something. It's one sixties. You you could have said like two thousand, yeah. and I would have maybe questioned. I would maybe question that. No, there's so many baseball games. They're going on strike for like the first two weeks of this year. Uh, so no baseball, maybe. Why? Like, why are they going on strike? Uh, players want. Rights. I don't know. Some Why? Bullshit. I mean, that's not allowed. Where I know. <laughs> uh, speaking of players' rights and ethical bullshit, um, Pete Rose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you know that he is the all-time leader in hits, like actual contact on the ball, and games played? He's played more games than anyone in baseball history, and he's made the most outs. He was an outfielder too, so um, very significant player who will never get in the Hall of Fame, right? Uh, <laughs> because of his uh, misdeeds and you know. Uh, betting on teams and uh, all his bullshit. And yeah. Because he was played by Tom Sizemore. If you're played by Tom Sizemore, you're legally not allowed to be in the Hall of Fame. That that checks out. Yeah. <laughs> so and if you have that haircut, that haircut also bars it's, it's, you. It's this terrible bull haircut. I said it was, it was, it was probably mean. I said it was the, the Agnes Varda look. Yeah, he's which looking is, like he wants Which is potatoes. very mean yeah. to Agnes Varda. I apologize to Agnes Varda for that. She has a style, at least. No, she know. rocks it. She yeah. rocks it. It's weird on... Tom Sizemore and Pete Rose. Both of them. Pete Rose looks weird as well. Yeah, someone needed to change that. I mean, 
Like, like you can have a little creative liberty in it. You know, you don't have to be that exact in it. So just before, like, uh, Bill Simmons and ESPN were, like, uh, on the vanguard of, like, documentary sports filmmaking, ESPN, like, was kind of in the business of, like, licensing these directors to do these sports movies. Uh, Bogdanovich is a weird choice, but uh, they did that. I mean, he was doing any and everything at this point. And, yeah, he just you know, came he's a, saintly switch. So. Yeah, he, and that's the thing, coming off of that, but um, he's just a respectable filmmaker in general looking for businesses. I guess one of those things where it's like, you get a name, you know, Bogdanovich is still a name. Once You, you make your name once, you're still a name, you know. In the same way that, uh, you know, horror movie directors in the 60s cast, you know, like, uh, you know, prima donnas from the 40s and stuff in yeah. their movies and, and made lots of money. You know what annoys me, though, is that like, there's a great opportunity to make low-budget sports movies that are exceptional. Like, Soderbergh just did his High Flying Bird, which was just incredible. Like, very good iPhone shot movie. I mean, there's an opportunity I there. I mean, they were, they were everywhere in this time period, right? Yeah. You know, inspirational sports picture. That's its own subgenre of movies. And there was a ton of them. And Gavin O'Connor had just come in with, like, Miracle and, like, define, like, what a sports movie could right. really look like. This, a modern one. this is the opposite of inspirational sports movies. <laughs> yes. This is de- de- depressing, yeah, <laughs> demotivational sports movie. It's, it's what happens when you're a shitty person and you ruin your life and destroy your legacy. <laughs> yeah, one of the greatest of all time. He was on The Big Red Machine, which was, like, the 1970s national um, dominant Cincinnati Reds team. He had just come off his playing career. He was playing for my beloved <laughs> Montreal um, Expos, a non-existent club now. But uh, I love that kid. I had that team. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but that's all of the, the Pete Rose contacts going in. Yeah, there's the, nothing. Film, <laughs> the film itself doesn't tell you any of that. Uh, there's, there's a montage in the beginning of paper cutouts of the real <laughs> Pete Rose, like, just kind of slapped together while... A Bruce Springsteen song plays, which I'm like, that's Bogdanovichian. Yeah, nice. he likes yeah. he likes Bruce Springsteen. That's that's about it though. That's that's this the that's Bogdanovich the angle on this movie. There's one other <laughs> thing that I love. It's the shot right at the end where he says, you know, oh, how will I ever let go of those you know days I spent in the ballpark, those 30 years of experience, and those will haunt me. And then he's just standing there um, by the base, and I like the symmetric. The symmetry of the baseball field, mm-hmm. and how it's played artistically. I mean, that's just a great shot. It would it would be great if there was context. To yeah, support there's nothing that. supporting like it, but it, it's, it's a good shot. I said this: it's it's a rise and fall story that's missing the rhyme. It's all fall, yeah. It's just it picks up as he's like as everything's crumbling down, but it doesn't give you any of the context, any of the appreciation for where he was, the height of his power. At this point, you know where the story starts. Pete Rose is already past his baseball career being you know a player he's managing the cincinnati reds now and then he's like maneuvering and manipulating things he's like shooting up at the beginning isn't yeah he? yeah because he that was steroids or was that drugs uh, i think it was drug he, okay. he 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 took he, he snorted something and then he shot something as well okay. so i assume it yeah but so he he's a he's a drug addict a drug addict and a more importantly, a gambling addict. Well, I mean, not more. They're the same well, thing. More, more yeah. importantly, to the story, like yeah, what, same what, tendency, though. Is what I, I want right, to make right. clear that they have yeah. the same issue. Th- there's yeah. not a hierarchy of uh, <laughs> uh, addiction here. I'm just saying, narratively, yeah. the thing that causes his downfall is the gambling. The movie's about the gambling, but, because but that's that's what. I feel like gambling's like short sold, like as an addiction. Though, like people don't focus on like this is the same. It's like sex uh, yeah. addiction. People are like that's not real. That's enjoyable. Like no, yeah, no, fuck off. off with it. Yeah, yeah. 
No, it's it's definitely yeah, like a, of an equal weight in terms of how that can totally debilitate someone. Yeah. But but for the purpose of the story, what what causes Pete Rose to lose his legacy, to ruin his reputation forever, is is gambling addiction because it pushes him to fix games and bet on sports and to manipulate the outcomes of games. And most importantly, betting benefit. on his own team. Exactly. We just had this in hockey. Evander Kane, a player for the San Jose Sharks, was gambling on his own games um, that he was playing in. Really fantastic D-man. He was just traded to Edmonton. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's still happening in sports. And, you know, it probably always will, honestly. Giant asteroid. This probably happens much more than we know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are just the guys who are caught. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the big thing. It was it was a big thing. The, the film was apparently based on the uh, what, what do you call it? The, the report, the the Dow's report, I think is what yeah, it was called. Something like that. Um, which uh, and and it wasn't sanctioned by the uh, uh, major baseball league. It, it wasn't like signed off on anyone except effectively ESPN. But uh, as a story, it just doesn't really work because it doesn't give us an appreciation for it. And so it's really just watching this terrible, shitty, scumbag person trash his life and reputation that we're not invested in at all. I need and sports movies either to be like a... There's like, like no a, sports to this no, movie. So I either need it to be a template for a human story or I need Moneyball where you're like deep inside the systemic issues and like the structures of sports and money it's really just like it's it's the consequences playing out and it's like the proceedings of like investigating it and it's, it's, there's like montages of like going through like you know n- notices and stuff and like you know pr- you know l- lots of paper going around yeah there's there's like no sports to be happening whatsoever in this <laughs> no. sports movie is this a sports movie i didn't see a single baseball baseball that's no. the verb right you baseball yeah, you baseball. There's no baseball happening. Yeah, and uh, so there's there's just no energy to the film, no, you know, interest. I'm not gonna lie. We watched this at like eleven at night. This was the end of the marathon. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that played a factor in our disinterest. But I I still think that just like like looking at it from a premise standpoint, you can't have a rise and fall story and just not have the rise. Yeah. You need to watch that. You need to watch someone climb up to the highest to their highest point to appreciate the great fall to the bottom. I just don't know if Tom Sizemore is capable of a rise. I think it. I think you just start with him. He's yeah. so unlikable. Also. Well, I guess that makes it good casting because yeah. I found like doing a bit of research. This was made while he was on bail for <laughs> like arrest for drug charges. Makes sense. Yeah. Oh, no, no, my bad. It wasn't drug. This was domestic abuse charges. Yes, yes, my bad. A different terrible thing that Tom Sizemore did. (laughs) Terrible. So, yeah, that's uh, not great to go along with it. Um, Not that Tom Sizemore can't be a good actor. I just never like him. I think he's good in some things, but I just... I guess we we should look up the Tom Sizemore. Ryan, is that... Yeah. That's major... Uh, let's see. I think he was another. He was in Point Break. Point Break. Yeah, he, he was. He was the. Wasn't he? He was the undercover guy. Imagine. You having, think I like this hair? Yeah. You think I like wearing? Imagine this? having Gary Busey and Tom Sizemore in one movie. Oh, that's right. He was the. He was the fucking uh, 
Snitch or whoever, the guy in Strange Days. He was like, oh, yeah. the villain there. We we just talked about him a couple yeah, times. Yeah, he can be fun. He was in Blue Steel, too. I don't remember okay. who he was in Blue Steel. But anyway, uh, I'm sure he was a piece of shit in all those movies. And he's good at doing that because, yes. oh, look, you know, it's it's not hard to fake that. He's so unlikable that he's, he's good at it. Yeah, uh, but here he's not so good. Like, just because there's nothing yeah. there's nothing here. It's, it's just the hair, also. <laughs> yeah, he's got better hair in Point Break. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of a weird note to go out on here. Just not a whole lot to say. Again, it, it has very little substance. It's one of the more, like, I, won't, uh, I think it's more a script problem than it is a direction, though, as opposed yeah. to some of the other ones. Like, There's... It doesn't feel like it's Bogdanovich faltering so much as it's poor material letting him down. Though, There's not so much here to direct. So. Well, he was interested in it. Like, he was drawn to it as this, again, because it, he, he said in, like, interviews, it was, like, this embodiment of, like, the failure of the American he connected with yeah. it in time in terms of like how celebrity set you up for failure which was okay. something he experienced how he felt like he you know like being a celebrity he was put into this certain box that, right. and, expect, and then that drew a lot of vehemence and you know that drew expectation onto him as well and mm -hmm. then created this environment for him to just utterly fall on his face and make big <laughs> Un, you know, like unwavering mistakes, you know. I mean, it's it's incredible to look at, like, the player who's most committed to the game of all time, who played the most games, has that kind of discipline, who has the best batting discipline of all time, and to say, yeah, but this person just, you know, they couldn't say no. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I, and I think, yeah, there, there is an interest in that story, but it's missing a major <laughs> yeah, part yeah. of it. It's missing the part that would endear us and bring us into that. Again, that interesting... You know why? What? What? It makes him the best. That yeah. best element is just not present in Hustle, and I think Bogdanovich was drawn to the wider narrative that was not encompassed by the entirety of the script. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, missed opportunity there, mostly on a script level. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we've gone through these six in pretty good detail. Um, well, let's do the thing that nobody has done before. Nobody's ever ranked all these yeah, uh, on a podcast. Let's add them anywhere, I bet. Anywhere. Nobody's ever. I bet, I bet not even in real life. I nobody's bet. ever watched Rescuers, so I doubt anyone's ranked it. Yeah. So let's do, let's make history here, okay. Calvin. Let us put these films into the Bogdanovich canon. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to start with what we started well, with, to well, start with we, love. Well, we, we have to run down the current canon first. Okay. We've got to do the list. All right, should I read it off? Yes. Should I read it please, quick? Or? Please do. Uh, do the first part quick, the middle part slow. And then the and last part medium yeah, quick. And yeah, then, yeah, like, yeah. The last two I'll do just very slow again. Yes. Okay. What's up, Doc? Paper Moon. Mask. They all laughed. Noises off. St. Jack. The last picture show. At long last love. Nickelodeon. She's funny that way. Daisy Miller, Targets, The Cat's Meow, The Thing Called Love, Texas Fell Illegal Yours. I think that's... I, I don't know if that's what we discussed, but I think that's... <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of there. I felt like it was, it was pretty like like regular in the beginning, yeah. and then it slowed down a little bit, and then you found the speed again. But yeah. you know what? It's good. I could do it again. Uh, Let, let's do it again at the end. Okay, we'll do it again at the end. <laughs> okay. So, first up, the first film we watched from this TV movie marathon was To Sir With Love 2. Yep, and we're putting that in Do second you, place. Second place? You think above Paper Moon? No, I don't <laughs> want to be ridiculous yet. Okay. We're going to be ridiculous, but not yet. Uh, what about, okay, so we have, uh, what's up, Doc? Paper Moon, Mask, They All Laugh, Noises Off. I think it's around, like, this Noises Off St. Jack territory. Mm -hmm. Tough to say where. 
yeah, I, I know you're still... Uh, I, I guess, let, let, let me ask this. Uh, it's been a while since we checked in. How do you feel about St. Jack? I really like it. I, I'm still? fond of it. I think about it a lot. Okay, yeah. I, I'm glad you still think about it. It's, it's a movie that's like... It, it leaves my mind a lot more again, because again, it's, it's the, just a, it's a haze. It's the one I most want to return to, and I'm thinking about here. Um, all right, let me let me let me give another. It's my mention. biggest takeaway, I think, of all these so far that so we've done. Interesting, interesting. I, for me, I think the movie that's less the most new impression is they all laugh. That one has has not. Oh, okay, it's not left me, and, and it's interesting that those two films, which were back to back, they're the ones that made this impression. I I think it really indicates that we lost. Something. Yeah, there was something there, going in that stretch, right? There was an yeah. evolution. Bogdanovich was becoming a new filmmaker, and then boom, his whole world blew up. Yeah, tragedy and offset whatever and progress. He was making some progress in the form of style at that point. He was he was redefining himself. He was creating this new kind of like more abstract style for himself, and and we lost it. I just don't think that. I mean, I like Sir, To Serve With Love, too. We both enjoyed it greatly. I just don't think it defines like his personal style, like in the canon of Bogdanovich. I, I mean, I might put it around noises off for that reason, because I feel the same way about that. Mm-hmm. It's very good, but I don't feel like it's his. I I mean, I feel like it is still, but I, I get what you mean at the same time. It it does feel less characteristic of him than, than some of the other films. In but the honor of it's so It's such a good movie, though, yeah, and, it, and in a very surprising way, not just in the sense that it's a TV movie and it's like a real movie, you know, you could say, in a kind of pejorative way, but it it really hits. and I would say that I would be yeah. pejorative, yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it really hits on some pointed and and you know surviving themes that and I'm impressed by the way it is able to take that idea, this icon of, yeah. of '60s racial relations, and apply it effectively to the '90s. And, I, I did say and, that and how that continues on to today. Oh, yeah. I did say that that was my favorite uh, Poitier moment that that bit with the where he hands the gun over to him and he's able to like uh, maneuver that conversation. But it's also one of my most prized Bogdanovich bit, bits right now. Uh, looking through this list, like that's a moment that stands out really large to me. And uh, yeah, the material. I mean, I, I didn't expect it to be so good. Yeah, I think it's mm, lo- looking at the top here. Maybe other than Mask, it's like his mo. It's it's it was the most effective dramatic film for me yeah like it has the most effective dramatic moments which is probably heresy to everyone who thinks that we did <laughs> last picture show a, a, a grievous disservice i'm sure but <laughs> that's the weirdest thing we've done if we've taken any risk it's our uh siding against the last picture show no and and, and we knew that going in we knew yeah, that we from step one and we said that up front this is going to be our most controversial I mean, it's what, thing. in seventh place it's going to be pushed to eighth place with this pick Either way, I think. For sure. I, I think uh, maybe we can decide that right now. Okay, start here. Yeah. Is this better than Last Picture Show? Yes, of course. Yes. yes. We we agree. This is a better movie than Last Picture Show. So starting around seventh place. and I think it's I think it's better than St. Jack. Again, I agree. Saint, Saint, I like St. Yeah. Jack more, but I think this is better. St. Saint, so. Saint Jack has this really indelible appeal, but I think that we can only credit that so much. There, there's a lot else to really appreciate about... But you certainly do rate movies on indelibility. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your favorite aspect. <laughs> I do. Which is also, and, and that's a reason I really like They All Laugh. Yeah. Because I feel like it has that same, you know, idea, but it also has a, a personal thing for it. It's, it's, it's the most Bogdan film. Personally, for me, if, if I'm going to say something here, I, because I still feel this connection with They All Laughed and this aspect of more to explore in it, I want to put To Serve With Love... Like, below it? Like, just below it. Okay. Uh, what about Noises Off, though? I, um, 
I laughed more in Noises Off. The I certainly did. I, I, I certainly agree. And I came I around. Not that I laughed at all. No. Right. I, <laughs> I, came, around, I came around I came around a lot. And the direction of Noises Off is really superlative. Uh, Better, in, yeah. Especially in certain sections. But it it, it was so, like, like I said last time, it was so effective in a way that I was almost off-put by it at the end. I was like, I need to so, walk away. <laughs> that's true, but it's very consistent. Like, the blocking's very good throughout. And I feel like there is this moment in To Serve With Love, too, where the romance comes in and we're like, oh, man, there's, like, this 20-minute stretch where the movie doesn't work. And I think Noises Off works consistently. I think St. Jack is on, like, the same spectrum of this, where, like, some of the movie's kind of iffy. But I like that approach, and it is indelible in a way. But... Uh, yeah, I'd put it. I'd put it right below noises off, honestly, because I feel like that's consistent and it has so many laughs throughout. I was never bored. I was always anxious, and we both like needed to go like lay down afterwards because it's it's just Ye- such a hit. Of yeah, cinema. my my complaints with noises off are a couple of supplementary things in the beginning and end. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's like a minor complaint. Really. They just don't lift off really. Yeah, yeah, they're they're just they're unnecessary. Um, and then the fact that it's it's too effective it, it, it exhausts me a little too much but in a way that i still respect the only problem is it's too effective yes. yeah <laughs> so i i i agree i think it's also better in the sense that it's it more exemplifies bogdanovich as a filmmaker okay yeah i do too i it's, think the comedic approach is better than like the sequel to someone else's work is what i, I want to yeah, go yeah it, 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 it more even though it's adaptation i mean that that's it's not fair sure, to say that's but, an original story but you do have you do have some original aspects of it i i, I love seeing john ritter there i feel like john ritter <laughs> yes. is this extension of bogdanovich in, yeah, in so many ways so seeing him as an important fixture particularly in this uh, element michael Caine is really great in the film too um you know, and it's not to say that, like, you know, in juxtaposition to, like, To Serve With Love 2, mm-hmm. but it it definitely... Fe- uh, I, I think To Serve With Love 2 beckons me to appreciate it more because it was unexpected. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and, and and you're right in that the, the, the third act bit does just kind of, you know, uh, the, the, the romance thing does feel kind of shoehorned in. And it's and not it, enjoyable at that point. Yeah. I mean, there's a part where it we comes like, back. Uh, it, it comes back... By the end, it's really like that one section that kind of weighs we, it down. But <laughs> we didn't discuss that at the end of the first movie. You were like, "Oh God!" Like the the girl had to touch a, a crush on the teacher, and oh, finally yeah. went up and danced with them. <laughs> and this cut to credits. You're like, "At least it didn't do the shit where the girl went up and danced with." Suddenly, the movie comes back, <laughs> and the girl walks over to Poitier and asks like, for a no! dance. But it's apparently it's not as creepy. No, because he's no, dancing no. with everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't there wasn't an implication of like a romance. No there. singling out. And, yeah. yeah. So it was it was all right, but it was funny for me to have said that. <laughs> and then immediately, and then immediately it's back in. And then immediately it's like ah, but here, yeah, no. Um, I guess the only other thing with to serve with love too is that it's very much in the mold of that kind of movie. It is one of the best examples I've seen in it. It excels at tackling themes that those films don't always do with great nuance, but it is one of those movies. It still hits those same narrative yes. beats. It's still in that same structure. Uh, Noises Off is is a really inventive farce that is kind of like an expose of the theater and the chaos and everything that goes along with that. And it's it's singular in that aspect. So I'm okay giving that to you there, even though I would probably watch To Serve With Love 2 again first. I would not, no. I, I, I would probably just because it's going to exhaust me less, but okay. But Noises Off is probably I think it's the a better movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they're both very good. 
So mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm very happy to get it in there. So it's noises off to start with love and Saint Jack in the in the upper echelon middle part of the list. Yeah, uh, it's to, that that makes to start with love two higher than I was expecting. Yeah, I, I was expecting probably like a competent, you know, like expected downgrade right. of of a movie classic, you know, <laughs> like like a, a, a like a Disney sequel, you know, those yeah. Disney straight to DVD sequels, yeah. like the live action Sidney Poitier version of that. I was expecting somewhere between that long last love and Nickelodeon, like that that part of the list, but it got up several above where I I had my expectations. Genuinely impressive, good movie that stands on its own merits, and probably the one that we've kind of discovered that we both have like a take on that's different than like the consensus on it. So that's that's fun to have it up there too. Yeah, a, a nice surprise that really demonstrates that these movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That shouldn't have just been relegated to the trash bins of memory. The uh, others, I think, will kind of get through more quickly. I think yeah. it's more obvious where Blessed Assurance should go. Blessed Assurance. Um, well, let's let's look at the bottom of the list. Where's yeah. the bottom of the list again? So we'll read up from the bottom. Illegally Yours, Texas Bill, The Thing Called Love, The Cat's Meow, Target. I don't need to go further than Target. So yeah, so. That's, that's, that's our bottom yeah. of the list. Um, is this better than Illegally Yours to you? Uh, uh, kind of same area. I'd, I'd put it below. Uh, illegally Yours has Bogdanovich's identity in it. Yeah, exactly. Very strongly. The biggest issues against it were that it felt compromised by exterior factors. It didn't... And it felt like it was still a film with an identity, trying and unable to succeed, not of its own faults. Yeah. Blessed Assurance feels like it is faltering at its own expense. It feels like it's... it's too mm. kind of rushed together. There's poor casting choices. The no chemistry. Between yeah, them. the actors aren't coming together. The di- director's not able to wrangle convincing performances from the collective cast. Um, and and also again, it, it lacks a more signature Bogdanovich identity that Legally Yours still possesses. And Legally Yours still has some of that thing that interests me about him moving the modern rom-com into like that old style inflict with like the inflections of the old Hollywood directors. Lots of lots of great powerful. I I genuinely laughed during Illegally Yours okay. several times. I didn't laugh at all. I mean, I don't. I didn't feel anything about uh, Assurance. Um, I I, I did, felt, you, did you feel anything? It had potential. I liked the ideas that its themes had, but it it, it could not bring them together. Okay. Bottom of the list, then. Yeah. Bottom of the list currently. Okay. It did. It, the only Bogdanovichian element is that Marilyn Monroe is in the plot. That's that. That's what I can paint. See you later, alligator. Bottom of the list. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about. This is the character often says. Yeah, the, yes. it's a, it's a weird sentiment that they play up for like. That's like the last line of the movie too. Yeah. Like, why would you exit with her like face fading over yeah, the screen? Yeah, like, like the 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 dead character <laughs> in in a in a half-faded, you know, image looking over these characters going off into something. They're, then, they're, they're dancing married on the beach. Yeah. And she says this... Something corny is that. Yeah. See you later, alligator. Pretty, pretty emblematic of how ridiculous the movie is. Um, um, Rescuers, stories of courage, two women. After a while, Crocodile is, is the part that it never gets to. You're right. supposed to follow it up with the You're response. Right. Yeah. Um, this, uh, let's just put it below. <laughs> yeah, no question. This was... Pretty miserable, barely even qualifiable as a movie. I did not, uh, I couldn't even register anything Bogdanovichian about it. it. It did not help me 
<laughs> it did not help me characterize his filmography any better. I could have easily gone without watching it. Like, if, if it just wasn't listed on his page, yeah, I would I not have missed anything. Yeah, I mean, this was almost like a edge case where maybe we couldn't have watched it, but uh, or shouldn't have. Um, I, I listed but as... We, but we did because we're the only ones. Yes, and I've listed as Rescuers Down Under because it's really at the bottom. <laughs> the, the the fourth movie in that series, yes. Naked City, also pretty clear, I think. I mean, less clear, but uh, I think it's a conversation around, I'd say, The Cat's Meow, the thing called Love, Texasville. Would you put it around that? No, actually. Lower? Yeah. Okay. Um, illegally Yours? Y- yeah, I, again, Illegally Yours, very Bogdanovichian. Has his okay. identity... Was yeah, compromised, really, of not of his own fault. I enjoyed aspects of it that just couldn't quite come together. Naked City felt like a very watered-down, plain-Jane, you know, 90s crime thriller. More fun than Bless- Blessed Assurance. Uh. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, it, it succeeds more than that film. It also tries less. It does try less. Um, it, uh, it doesn't have to try. That's no, no it, it, has a, it has an innate genre appeal but it's very you know whatever in that appeal like it doesn't really fulfill that all the way but it's enough to just eke it over the failures of blessed blessed assurance okay i agree i'd uh, i'd go illegally yours naked city blessed assurance rescuers down under yeah that's that's where we're confused people um rescuers second chance stories of women that's better second now chance that up. Yeah. <laughs> all right Saintly Switch. Yeah. Um, Saintly Switch, we're going to put... Uh, let's start above St. Jack, above To Serve With Love 2. Uh, I'd put it above... Okay, so let me read like a middle part of the list. So, last Picture Show at Long Last Love, Nickelodeon, She's Funny That Way, Daisy Miller. I'd put it below Daisy Miller, above Targets. Is that weird? Is, that, is it weird to put it above Targets? Targets seem significant in a way that Saintly Switch, obviously. I mean, I, I, put, it, I put it above... Targets in my personal ranking, but I okay. I agree in the sense because what I like about targets are the good parts. I feel like there are too many bad parts though yeah. in targets. There's too many okay. there's too many bland parts. There's too many extended parts. Again, like the big thing is that it's very drawn out. There's so much of it that's just like build up, build up. We're we're, we're walking everywhere. We're sh- we're shooting all <laughs> yes. this footage because we only got 20 minutes with Boris Karloff. So all of the Boris Karloff stuff. Great. If I could take that out and I could rank that separately, it would be much higher. But I can't. Actually, I, I do like it better than she's funny that way. So I I I, I don't. You don't. Okay. But if you want to put it above Daisy Miller, I'll agree to that because you know I have zero feelings of affection for Daisy Miller. I'll only put it above Daisy Miller if you also put it above. Um, she's funny that way. Mm, no. You only move it up to. Otherwise, it stays low. I no. Again, <laughs> she's funny that way. Okay. In the same vein of, like, like I talked about with uh, Legally Yours, it feels like a Bogdanovich film. This feels like a film from his heart, from uh, that he wants to tell with yeah. his kind of comedy, and it's just, it's a little, like, not fully realized. It's, a, it's not quite there. I did learn recently that they found a cut of the film that has, like, an extra 30 minutes or something that they're showing at the Museum of Modern Art. Oh, wow. And they've titled it under the original title, like I mentioned last week, Squirrels to the Nuts. That's great. And I hope that gets released because... I mean, if it were that movie, I'd say put it above Saintly Switch, but it's not that movie. Well, I, I think it's better, but, uh, but I'm saying I want to see that film. When it, whenever it gets made available, I want to see the extra version because yeah. there is enough to like in She's Funny That Way that... It, actually, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, I did actually rank 
saintly switch higher than she's funny that way. So maybe yeah, I do. right. We both have. So yeah. we, we both agree that it is. A... Uh, I, yeah, I guess I got to, but. Below Nickelodeon, I think, for sure. Yeah, Nickelodeon's better. And I think it's so funny for us to put a saintly switch in the middle of the list, a movie nobody's seen that's a Disney original. Right, right. Directed by one of the, like, a. Um, what are the. Like, <laughs> What of the guys who was like the in the pre- circles? The preeminent of, auteurs of the new Hollywood age? Yeah, yeah. Like one of, yeah, a friend of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Yeah, yeah. The, so, so you, you're you're just two people away. You're one person away, really, from uh, like David Allen Greer. You can you can connect six degrees to Orson Welles, basically. Absolutely. Like he's, he's only three away. But um, yeah, you know. I, I, it's weird though. I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this list, and I'm like, hmm, like she's funny that way. Has sat with me more affectionately than I would have thought. Yeah, I think you've under, I think you undervalued it. The I'm, first time I'm, we ran I I maybe it. did. You were a little lower than you sound now. I I did, so. and I think I, I think a big part of it was how ugly I thought it looked. <laughs> it is very ugly. It's very cheap. And I'm, I'm, I'm Which, also thinking, Mac, okay. I'm reminding myself how they, they all congregate in this yeah. one Italian restaurant and it's the most unbelievable bullshit. So let's say that one is ugly, but I think the expectation for like video on demand, not to say that it has to be an inferior format, but as a budgetary necessity, I think those movies don't get to look that good. So right, but it's okay that Saintly Switch doesn't look amazing. Is what sure. Saying. I think it looks better than She's Funny That Way. I do too. Like, she's Funny yeah. That Way look, look like shockingly cheap yeah uh not just from a cinematography perspective but like editing wise it was it was very bizarre very odd but i want to see that other version like i i think the the existence of that is also like reforming it in my mind that i'm like there's a better version of it out there maybe <laughs> i'm not appreciating it. maybe I think it, maybe it'll inform it, better, it sounds but, to me like you've changed since you found out that there's another version i i think maybe i have is that your I, fetish well, you're think, into different <laughs> versions of movies it is a little bit like I, I do pine for for these lost versus these these redemptions so to speak of a version and and it's because the legacies of people like Bogdanovich and his mentors in like Orson Welles have yeah. very much thrived and they're they've gone all around reevaluations and reappraisals because of these new versions that have come out and existed but I, I will say I didn't expect us to keep pushing targets so low like it looks like it's on like the bottom half of the list now and uh, I like targets. It's I, weird. I do. I do yeah. like targets, but I I like parts of targets. Okay, I, I agree. Again, I, if I could take the parts of targets and rate them, I I would prefer to do that, but I yeah. can't. Uh, I'd agree. Um, the, our, next up, we have hustle, which um, much like Pete Rose in the Baseball Hall of Fame, I think uh, we just don't include it on the list. We just create <laughs> a separate category and don't admit it. Do the haircut and size more. You know, it's. It's funny that I'm humoring this, that I'm, that I'm actually kind of like, you know, you've got a point. Yes. Yeah. I feel like it just doesn't belong on the list. Like, it's an ESPN film. Who are they? <laughs> but, but they don't the, make movies. But theoretically, like, like not, not that we're including it on the official list here, but theoretically, where would you end up, like, putting it if you, if you kind of had to estimate qualitatively where it went, would go here? That's tough. Um, I'd put it between... Okay, let's start with Naked City and go down. Okay. Okay, so I'd put it below Naked City. I would put it even below. I'd put it below Blessed Assurance, personally. Okay, me too. I'd put it above Great. Rescuers. It's, yep, okay. yep. We're, we're in complete agreement there. Hustle, again, film with a presence, had potential. Uh, film with a premise, had potential, but just lobbed off half of the interesting stuff in, in before it was even off the, you know, off the page. Uh, so it just, you know... Gimp from from go there effectively. Blessed assurance. 
I see the potential for the material that could not manifest, that they just were not able to capitalize on. Absolutely. But, it, but it's something. It's there. Hustle not doesn't there. doesn't have that. It, There's no there. It, there. it yeah. actively abandoned what it had. I agree. Okay. Um, shall I do just a normal reading? Because we have so many now, I don't want to be confusing. Yeah, okay. okay. Let's, let's do a normal reading through... Our list. These One are, pace of reading, by the way, not not multiple speeds. Yes. Yes. Single, steady, clear pace of every narrative feature film in Peter Bogdanovich's career. We did it. Now we can do a Pearl Jam high five because we're in person. Okay. What's up, Doc? Paper Moon, Mask. They all laughed. Noises off. To Sir with Love too. Saint Jack. The Last Picture Show. At Long Last Love. Nickelodeon. The Saintly Switch. She's funny that way. Uh, Daisy Miller, Targets, The Cat's Meow, The Thing Called Love, Texasville, Illegally Yours, Naked City, Blessed Assurance, Hustle, Asterix, Disqualified, Asterix, uh, Rescuers Down Under. <laughs> I think we the story, two, story of two women, two people surviving Nazis. Brothers, the story of two souls. Is that a video game? End of Evangelion. Yeah. End of Evangelion 3.1 plus two women. <laughs> Thrice that's, upon time. That's That sounds about right. Yeah. I like this list. I'm proud of this list. Probably. I am too. Uh, we're we're going to do uh, possibly what you didn't want and put documentaries in it next you're week. Just, and... you're, you're making me have to try and quantify documentaries, which I don't like to do. My rule of the show is if we're going to bring it on to an episode on it, I think it has to make the rankings. And thing. that's a fair it's a show rule. Thing. That's a fair rule. Yeah. I just have a weird hang-up about trying to, like, compare documentaries with narrative features. Like, it's just... It's it's a whole different ball game. But I'll do it because there's only four more movies. There's <laughs> yes. only four other films left here. And they're interesting films. I want to talk about the documentaries that Peter Bogdanovich made because yeah. they're really cool movies and they're worth seeking out. And they cover uh, an interesting cross-section of, of subjects. They do. And they pertain and they help to inform his career even further, particularly his career as a historian, as a documentarian, and, and as a film advocate, and as a preservationist. This isn't to say that we'll always do documentaries. Most of the time we'll exclude them when we have a director who yeah. has them. In, in the same way we exclude, like, short films. Short films. Again, as, as Bogdanovich said, it's snob appeal, but, yeah. you know, that's how we roll. Yeah, it's all snob appeal, and that's the the point of the list. We're almost done with Bogdanovich. Uh, we one did more his, week! Yeah, we did his and narratives. Then, and then we'll announce the next one after that. Yep, which we're working on, and we'll have a special guest for uh, Plug-wise, you could subscribe to Daydream Cast. I'm thinking of spoiling things. Um, what other shows do we have? 808s and Pod Breaks. Don't let the motor cast get you. Don't let the motor cast get you. Um, um, the stacks are coming back soon. Uh, lots of content on the site. We'll be doing ranking, South ranking by. Ranking the Monsters. Yeah, yeah. Ranking, ranking the Monsters. monsters the yeah. one you're on. Our premiere, our second premiere show. <laughs> I guess we're, are we ranking Twin Geeks shows now? We will. That'll so, be our next show. So, yeah. the Twin Geeks, Ranking the Monsters... And then, I'm gonna say, is Daydreamcast next or? Yeah, I think I think they, so. They they have the they have the longevity, so right. you know, I feel like we got to give. It's that just to like them. their gap there it caused them to slip down the yeah so to slip down below the monsters. Plus, uh, video games are not as good as movies. An, in, an inferior yeah. format. I'd agree. Um, I mean, we're a movie website first too, so we're not going to rank a video game show above us. Yeah. 
I mean, we, we started that shit. We, we started talking about Animal Crossing. They're like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had a video game <laughs> podcast? They stole one of our prime subjects. Yep, which, it was. And then they dropped it. No yeah. More, no more Animal Crossing Minute. We had the Animal Crossing Minute first, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll tune in next week where we'll rate the other Twin Geeks podcast. Yes. Alongside the final films of Peter Bogdanovich. Thank you for listening to my podcast. my conversations and I post them online for entertainment it's nice to know at least you listen to the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world things have changed everybody's entertaining who's being entertained thank you for listening Yeah.